Welcome to the M3 Bear Essentials Podcast. My name is Malcolm Travers. Each Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, I host a YouTube live broadcast and invite the editors and contributors of Mail Media Mind to present a topic of their choosing. We discuss politics, social issues, especially those facing the black and LGBT communities, entertainment, mental health, sexuality, and relationships, or whatever makes the news or makes us mad. View the show recording live to ask questions or comment in the chat. Subscribe to M3 on YouTube to get a notification when we go live. You can find links to our YouTube page and other social media platforms at mailmediamind.com. Now, enjoy the show. And welcome to the M3 Sunday Hangout. Uh, Mail Media Mind is a grassroots organization dedicated to uplifting and unifying the Black Bear community through dialogue, insight, creativity, and knowledge. And every Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern, we need to discuss the current events of the past week and to give our unique perspectives on the world. As always, we'd like to get your input, so uh, leave us your comments in the live chat. You can also tweet us at Mail Media Mind, direct message on Instagram at Mail Media Mind One, or you know, Facebook us, whatever. <laughs> uh, we like to get your comments and questions on the things that we're discussing or whatever happens to be in your mind. Uh, make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, uh, SoundCloud, and iTunes so you can get all of our latest updates. Um, I'm going to start with our panelists, starting with uh, Marco Estes, who is the host in the, of the Entertainment Hangout, which was this past Friday. And he also is a writer and a librarian. Welcome. How? <laughs> and... Derek Jones, who's joining us from New York, he is a baker, a leatherman, and like the funniest guy, really, because we talk about a lot of depressing shit, and you keep me from killing myself. Thanks. <laughs> Hello, everyone. This funny thing has been coming up a lot lately. <laughs> well, you know, this is one when a time is needed for a little levity, because I, like I said, I try to structure the show where I have topics. And everyone else can introduce their topic and then end on a lighter note. Um, just so, because we're talking about so much down shit. But um, truth is, I enjoy talking about it with guys and um, love uh, breaking it down. So one of the first things I wanted to do was just do a news update. Um, I get a lot of clips from NPR News, which is a public like network. Um, but I should be plugging. Enjoy it while you can. I know I should be plugging NPR. Like donate. <laughs> Enjoy it while you can. Exactly, because they have. That was what's in the news. It's funny how NPR reports on their own, you know, industry possibly getting this, you know, defunded. Wait, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah, you hadn't heard. Yeah, that's one of the things that's going to be is 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 proposed to be cut is uh, NPR. Yeah. So yeah. You should probably know that. <laughs> Did you mute yourself so you could curse out loud? Because it's okay to curse out loud. <clears throat> no, I'm in shock, and I don't know if I should grab the invisible pearls or just run outside screaming like the world is coming to an end. How long is NPR? I think you should. <clears throat> How long is what? How long has NPR been running? Like since the beginning of time? Yeah, something like that. Since you know. Probably not since the invention of radio, but yeah, it's 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 nothing new. Yeah, so I think one of the things is is that they can continue on, but they won't get public money. Right. Um, they'd have to become a commercial organization, which they can, 
and continue to but, donations. But but the problem with that is once you get corporate sponsor, then you have to then you fall into corporate control. Yeah, and those stories that don't get told uh, because you know you're paying our bills won't get told. Exactly. I, I mean, like it's interesting when I got television and I, I finally got cable news back after like ten years of not watching it. Um, I don't know. It was amazing just how different it is from NPR because that's what I've been listening to for you know while I didn't have cable. And I don't know. I loved cable news before I was on NPR, <laughs> but now it's kind of like, oh my god, it's too loud. It's too bright. It's too. I don't it's know. Too bright. The colors, the colors. Exactly. I don't know. It was just like way too like trying to grab your attention, you know. And NPR is not like that. So it's almost like a stylistic thing versus a content thing for me. Um, but I don't know. I, I want to go ahead and start the news because you got to start it a little bit late. I'm going to try to pause between stories. They usually at the top of each hour highlight the top three stories of the week or the current day. So I'm going to start. NPR News in Washington. I'm Windsor Johnston. The nation's Health and Human Services Secretary is weighing in on the debate over the GOP plan designed to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Tom Price, speaking on NBC's Meet the Press, says the health care overhaul the Trump administration and congressional Republicans envision will mean more people covered at a lower average cost. I firmly believe that that nobody will be worse off financially in this in the process that we're going through, understanding that they'll have choices that they can select the kind of coverage that they want for themselves and for their family, not that government forces them to buy. Republicans are at odds with each other over the plan. Some conservatives say it doesn't go far enough. The House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. Okay, so we're going to talk about Tom Price and Obamacare. I had actually five clips queued up, and one of them is actually on Obamacare, so we can pull that into that. Um, but basically, um, what's happening, I believe it was Tuesday that they unveiled, or was it was Monday, when they unveiled the um, the secret Trump care plan. Um, it basically is Obamacare 0.5. You know? uh, they basically reduce the, the price by reducing coverage and uh, reducing coverage. I mean, reducing coverage and for those people who have insurance and obviously kicking off about 20 million people. Um, and then they get rid of the mandate, but they keep most of the other provisions minus the funding for abortion. <laughs> like they're just putting in some petty shit and like, oh yeah, and fuck your abortions. <laughs> and, uh, it's just weird, I don't know. Um, what are your thoughts about the healthcare plan? Well, <clears throat> well, like I said earlier this week, um, well, a friend of ours, me and Derek, posted something I copy and paste onto my timeline. Give us the same damn healthcare that y'all have in Congress. Mm-hmm. That's what I want because when Paul Ryan's ass was sitting there trying to be hip and break down the damn healthcare bill that they get. He sat there, had the audacity to sit there and try to bring his kids into it. And talking about, I think they all had a tonsillectomy each mm-hmm. year. And he was like, that was $1,400 for, you know, this for, for recovery alone. And 
you know, all the kid was doing was sitting there in the couch eating popsicles. I mean, come on. I'm like, yeah, well, you can't. I was going to say that he cannot sit there and be like, because I'm like, what, what? Like, did you come out of college making the I know you didn't come out of college making the money you're making now. But I'm pretty sure that if your ass was elected to a seat wherever you were at while that shit was going on, you had money to pay for that. That was nothing to you. That was nothing to you. So again, you cannot utilize that as as a way to sit there and say, like, you know, well, healthcare is too high because I have to pay. No, motherfucker. Give me Joe Schmo. Give me, you know, the average motherfucker up there who has to sit there and has, like, cancer or some shit like that. You need to bring those people to the forefront. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the problem. You ain't catered to those. You cater to those who can probably go afford out-of-pocket pay or some shit like that. But yeah. I don't know. Well, um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just yeah. hoping, you know, sometimes I come up with these ideas and then I have a brain part and I just want to say it before, <laughs> before I forget. But yeah. um, one of the major issues I've had with the healthcare debate is the fakeness of it. Is because Republicans, by definition, don't believe in the actual goals of healthcare. They don't believe that people should be covered. You know what I mean? Like, they're like, well, I know my constituents want this, so I'm going to come up with something and, you know, try to appease them. But at their core, they don't believe that poor people, you know, they their issue when they, they talk about it, it's like, this is just another entitlement. That's the thing they call it, uh, which is to say, this is just one of those things that we should be doing, <laughs> but we don't want to pay for it. You know? Right. So, what are your thoughts, Derek? Um, um, they're going to kill people. Yeah. You know, they, they see these things as numbers. They don't see these things. And you know what? I'm not going to even say that. I was going to say they don't see these things as people. I think they just don't care. It ain't me. They really don't. I think that, you know, if you notice, there's a couple of, uh, mental health is the only thing they kind of don't <laughs> fuck with. Because all of them have family members that have dealt with mental health. So they can relate to that. So that's okay. But, you know, not, you know, being forced to have a child that you may not be able to take care of. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's okay. You can, you can put it up for adoption or, you know, you can find a better way or you can stop having sex. <laughs> Any number of things. I was going to say one of the things that um, it, 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 there is one slight thing that um, you have to remember, which is that this is the first version of the bill. Um, it is horrible. It's just sad. But because uh, conservatives hate it, um, would you know, Con and Obamacare light because they don't have to pass it with any Republican votes, right? But they do have, I mean, any Democratic votes. Democratic votes. Yeah. But they do have to get, uh, um, I forget exactly how many, um, 50 senators to vote for it. And they have a majority of 52. And right now in the Senate, I believe they already have three defectors. So they have to win over at least one or two of those people. Um, pass the bill. And then, yeah, but basically we were, t- um, I have another clip that I can play uh, specifically about the health care bill. And uh, we can figure out the audio issues. Um, 
Because basically, um, there was uh, an explanation talking about Tom Price, the, uh, the new health secretary. And uh, he asked, actually is also a congressman from the Atlanta area. And um, I think there's a special election to, to uh, you know, fill his seat that's coming up, actually. But um, he is, you know, he was one of these members of Congress who also is uh, a doctor. Um, so he feels like, uh, you know, because I'm a doctor, I am an expert in healthcare. <laughs> you know, which, yeah, they might be an expert at the point of contact, you know, with patients. You know, they understand that bureaucracy. But there's like a huge other side to it, talking about the insurance industry uh, versus, you know, the public health care industry, the drug, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, the AMA, the, the American Medical Association read the uh, read the health plan and they just said no. Yeah. Just no. And I believe that was actually the interview that I was going to uh, playing. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah, people who deal with all areas of the industry are just telling it like it is about like what this bill does. And the problem seems to be that people are creating their own facts. But um, let me do some real facts <laughs> and by playing one of the first here. I'm having... It is hard to imagine a political party being any more clear about something. Republicans have wanted Obamacare gone since the day the law was enacted. They voted symbolically to repeal it more than 60 times. Of course, the question was always, what would they replace it with? Well, now we know. House Republicans unveiled a plan yesterday, and let's talk about it with NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis, who's in the studio. Sue, good morning. Good morning, David. So what are the key parts of this Republican plan? So the legislation is called the American Health Care Act, but Democrats are already calling it Trump. Uh, the core of the bill repeals the mandate that tells individuals they have to buy insurance and phases out all of the taxities and subsidies in Obamacare and eventually replaces it with a system of refundable tax credits that you'll get based on your income and your age. Uh, the federal government would no longer penalize you if you don't have health insurance, but it would let your insurer impose higher penalties on you if you let your coverage lapse when you go back to sign back up for it. So there is still a bit of an incentive to encourage people to have health insurance. It just rewards insurers and not the government. Uh, and it also keeps in place some of Obamacare's most popular provisions. It's, it keeps the provisions that uh, require coverage protections for pre-existing conditions, and it would still let parents keep their kids on their health care plans until they're 26. And all of this would happen over a gradual two to three year implementation plan. So it wouldn't be fully implemented until about 2020. Well, I wanted to ask you about keeping some of Obamacare, because obviously one thing we're going to be hearing a lot from Democrats is their criticism of, of this bill. But if it keeps part of Obamacare, are there some Republicans who are going to have trouble supporting this? Absolutely. Conservative hardliners in the House and Senate have already been very critical of the plan. They don't like the subsidies. They just see it as a new entitlement program by another name. It's just more government spending. And if that opposition holds, it could be a significant problem. One of the leading voices of opposition is Rand Paul, the Republican senator from Kentucky. He's calling it Obamacare 
light. He's already indicated he's likely to oppose it. But Congress has worked really closely with the White House on this. And supporters of this bill, including the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, ultimately believe that conservatives are not going to want to be on the wrong side of President Trump back home in their districts where he is very popular. So they're confident at the end they'll be able to get the votes. But there's very little wiggle room here. Republican leaders can only lose about 19 Republicans in the House and only about two in the Senate and still be able to pass it. So there's very little room for error. One more thing about this bill, David, that we don't know yet. We don't know how much it's going to cost, and we don't know how many people it's going to cover. We're going to find that out when the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office weighs in. But that that report will be very influential to winning over conservatives. Well, what do you do if you're Democrats right now, Sue? I mean, you don't control anything in Washington. Do you, do you fight like mad to keep Obamacare? Do you work with Republicans? What position are they in here? You know, they are taking almost a similar attack to that Republicans did to Obamacare. They're, they appear to be unanimously opposed to it. Aside from the top lines of the bill that they just don't support, there's also many lower provisions in the bill that they will not vote for. For example, uh, the bill would not let individuals, they would not let individuals get the tax subsidy if they purchase a private plan that covers abortion services. Services. So obviously, Democrats are going to be widely opposed to that. And remember, this was the president's signature domestic achievement. They see this fight about protecting his legacy. And they just don't believe that the bill has been, in the words of President Trump, a disaster. About 20 million more Americans do have health coverage today because of this law. Um, I always think it's worth reminding in this in this fight that it's still a very small piece of the population. Only about 6% of Americans get their health insurance through the individual market. So it has really been a remarkable hmm. political fight over what is a relatively small piece of the healthcare market. Well, where does this remarkable political fight go now? We have this bill from Republicans, but that's obviously just going to be just the beginning. They're looking at a really ambitious timeline. House committees are going to start moving it on Wednesday. The the full House could vote on it as soon as next week, maybe the week after. Then it'll go to the Senate where they're trying to get a bill to the president's desk right before the Easter break. And that is just five weeks from now. But President Trump has publicly and repeatedly urged Congress to act and to act fast. Okay, so we could uh, see things move very quickly. NPR congressional correspondent Susan Davis, thanks, Sue. Thanks for having me, David. Um, let me go ahead and get um, Xavier's take on the healthcare plan. I'm going to um, mute myself <laughs> so hopefully we won't have echo. All right. So one of the things that she didn't mention that was also a part of this was it's also going to defund planned uh, planned childhood, planned parenthood, um, and those clinics they offer a lot of services, and then. Another thing that's going on with this is, like they say, they don't know how much this is going to cost. And the language is very specific in the fact that it says that health care plans will be available. That does not mean affordable. And that is two totally different types of language. And it means something differently. I gave my patients the example of this. Let's say you work at a fast food restaurant or you work in a retail and you are living um you know, they keep you just under that wage hour where they have to give you health care, health insurance, right? And your check is enough for you to make it on day, week to week, or check to check, whatever. Now, insurance is a chunk that would be, you know, they would sit there and when you do insurance, they would factor in your age, factor in how much you make. And that doesn't, that's, that's before taxes. I'm sorry, before taxes. So, 
They're not considering what other bills you may have. They're not considering how much you lose in taxes. And then they tell you, okay, so your premium is $300 a month. When you are already struggling to make ends meet with what you already were paying, now you have to pay this extra $300 a month for a very basic, very slim healthcare plan that'll cover you for basic things that you may go to the doctor for. Um, and that is their version of making it available. The big thing about this is that it's going to defund um, government spending in health care and health insurance services for people who otherwise could not afford it. Yeah. It's our most complex system. It's one of the most complex systems in America because it touches so many things. When you say healthcare, you know, that's the facility, that's the doctor, the nurse, the tech, the lab people, that's um that's it's maintenance, that's a whole less that's pharmacy, that's pharmaceutical drugs and pharmaceutical companies. So healthcare is extremely, extremely complex system, and the finances of healthcare are extremely massive. And that's why a lot of other countries have went to universal health care. They went towards this system of care. Huh? It's just easier. It's easier and it's more cost efficient because if I go to a private doctor, excuse me, here in Georgia to get something I need done, the price that he may charge me is indiscriminate. There's no discriminatory amount that he can charge for that. Same thing with pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals set their own prices. It doesn't have any rhyme or reason to it. It's not because of R&D or anything like that. They just set the price at whatever price they want to set it at, and there will be some people who can afford it and some who can't. But then how do you dictate who should be able to afford a life-saving drug and who can't? Who should? Why should we be able to, based on cost, decide who should get life-saving care from the best physicians and who shouldn't? Yeah, that's a really good point. So it's a human. It, it, then it turns into a humanitarian issue. So that makes it more complex. So like I say, healthcare is extremely complex. Yeah. And one of the things I did want to mention about the bill that might be positive um, is one of the things that they argued about with the uh, Obamacare uh, bill or the ACA. Um, I, th- I forget exactly when it was introduced. It was in 2009 or 2010. Anyway, um, the first time around, they couldn't get um, prescription Part D funding um Basically, one of the things that they wanted to do was allow uh, Medicaid to use its great power, I mean, their great purchasing power, purchasing uh, drugs in bulk to negotiate better drug prices. Uh, The way they put it in an example was, like, let's say it's a standard sort of treatment for, say, leukemia, and you have four different companies that are offering the same sorts of um, chemotherapy. Um, and, you know, the government has got to or pay for the drugs of X number of patients who are on their plan, you know, they should be able to choose the best price and influence the market because there's such a huge portion of people who are on, you know, Medicare and Medicaid. Um, Obamacare didn't allow that. And it was mainly because of the, um, deal making that had to happen. You know, uh, they, it was so close, the vote was, um, you know, because they had to pass it with a 60-vote majority. And I believe, you know, in the middle of the health healthcare battle back then, 
there was a special election because Ted Kennedy died. And then, they, you know, there was a replacement that was a Republican because the governor was. So they lost their majority in the middle of the health care debate. And so they had to make certain concessions to get it passed. And one of those concessions was negotiating drug prices. So that is one thing that will be a part of this bill, just simply because the Republicans have such a huge majority. Um, and I think it's somewhat ironic because they're basically doing the same thing Obamacare did, just with the underlying principle that they don't believe in actually covering people. So, you know, they give these huge tax breaks to, you know, healthcare executives and industry people because that was how Obamacare was funded. Um, and so they got rid of all the funding and then lowered all the subsidies. And I mean, by definition, they haven't actually scored it yet. You know, they haven't, you know, uh, the Congressional Budget Office hasn't actually calculated the number of people who are going to lose coverage. But just by definition, you're going to kick people off because you're you're lowering the subsidy. Um, I guess we'll see how that ends in the end, you know, because the bill is, is going to take like two or three months. And one of the four, one of the four, out of the four deserters, I think the reason why that one of the things that they're saying is they feel like it's going to negatively impact a lot of their constituents. Yeah. So you got to understand that all Republican, it is all Republicans don't have money. In fact, most Republicans are broke ass people. Yeah, and there are people who actually need some sort of health care bill. So the four the four uh, Republicans who have said who dissentioned and said that you know we're not gonna we can't back this because it's gonna neg- they are the four I think that have actually sat down and read both bills and understand both bills because it's one thing to read them, it's a completely different thing to actually be able to understand them. And out of the four that that all four of them that have walked away and said, we, we're not going to support this change. I think they realize it's going to negatively impact all of their constituents, even though their constituents are Republican. And even though they know that Obamacare isn't perfect or it's not flawless, they know that the alternative that's going to be offered is not going to be the best route to go. And I think that's why they're going so far against their party and they're going against everything. They're going against party. They're going against the presidency. They're going against everything to say we can't support this because I think they know after reading both of them that they're going to lose a lot of people. They really are. And one of the major reasons for that is the way that they change the subsidies. I think um, they noted on it in the story is how they fund it. It used to be funded basically based on income, um, your geographic location, your age, and some other indicators that Medicaid to determine right they use a metric which is something that you heard uh ben carson talk about when he was running for president about using the right metrics and finding the right metric the problem with stuff like that is most of the time when mathematicians and these people who look at markets and they decide cost of living and all this other foolishness most of the time by the time their report comes out it's five or ten years later it's a five years yeah yeah, it's already out of date. It's already out of date. So the cost of living, how much things cost, has already changed. And then you've set this measure, or this is this metric or this measure, at a place where it doesn't help anybody. The people who need it can't get it. That was a conversation. This reminds me of a conversation I had when I was getting ready to start paying student loans. And they wanted to know how much I make before taxes and before this and before that. And I told, her, I said, well, ma'am, if you go by that. 
And you would think I make as much as a damn doctor. If you're just going by that, I mean, that does not make a lot of sense because nobody in America takes home, takes home what their pay is at the beginning. Nobody does. I said, so that's not going to help me in getting under control of these student loans. Yeah. And so, you know, and this is not something that I had to go through. This is the thing all of my friends and everybody had to go through. And but that's how they have this system set up is, well, we base it off of your income pre-tax. Before tax. Yeah. Right. Which is nonsensical. But that's what they do. And this is the same thing for Medicaid and Medicare. Even and to tell you just how bad this situation is, even with that, is. If you have a vehicle, they consider a vehicle an asset. Running or not has nothing to do with it. So when they calculate how much you have, when they look at how much you make and, you know, how much you may be getting in, um, let's say, disability benefits or whatever, and this, this, and this, and then they calculate, you know, well, a car, well, what's the black book value of this car? Uh, you got two of those. You got this car and that car. Okay. It's so easy not to qualify. Most of the time, the only way to qualify is you literally got to be a sandwich away from being in the soup kitchen. <laughs> I'm so serious. Though. Uh, it's that bad. So, uh, let me, so let me say this. I have for the last six, seven months on disability. Yeah. And everything Xavier is saying is absolutely true. Yeah. Um, everything that he said is I mean, yeah. they they monitor they monitor my bank account because if I get too much money in my bank account, then I no longer mm-hmm. qualify. Exactly. But what do you do in the meantime? Right. Yeah, I think uh, you know while they're trying to decide whether you qualify or not to get disability. You know, if like I can't work because I can't stand for long periods of time. Yeah. I mean, not just like in the kitchen stand. I mean, like on the bus. You know, during rush hours, stand up. My back gives out. But you know, I yeah. So so, what do you do in that in between time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what's so crazy about the, the healthcare debate is that there are so many underlying problems. Like you said, just the problems of bureaucracy, the problems of the matrixes because of how late the data is. That part, when you mentioned it, was like, there is no real solution to that because when they're doing the calculations with things like jobs and growth and things like that, the best information about a time frame doesn't really come out for two or three years. So say, for instance, you're talking about a recession and you're trying to find out if you're in a recession, the, the mess apart is you don't even know that you're in a recession until two years after when you see the trend overall. So, right. You know, so yeah, especially during times of, of great economic change, like you're saying, like I, I think that is where we are right now. Um, and see, I think you should scrap a matrix. I don't think you should even try to use a matrix or something yeah. like that. I think you should look at common sense. You need to look at actual, you need to look at where the person financially is right now and what is the market right now. Yeah. And just do it from there. Go start, let that be your start point and figure it out from there. Because unless they got hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank, then no matrix you're going to use is going to be a fair rational enough matrix that's going to do anything for this person. Even if you come in and you think you're giving them this great rate, 
you're saying, you know, well, your insurance is only $175 a month. Okay. Have you ever paid daycare a bill? You know, a daycare bill before? You know, I know people who pay $1,000 a month in just daycare. Yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess um, before we move on to another topic, I just want to talk about what the Democrats should do um, in opposing this bill because it needs to be opposed. Um, but they really have no power. Um, I'll, I'll... That's not true. See, I, I disagree with that. I, I disagree with that. Okay, but I, I just I wanted to point out a few they... things before we get into it. Um, basically, there are uh, two things that the Democrats have done that I thought was interesting. Uh, because you're in a protest position. And so let me explain why I say they don't have any power. They cannot um, stop the bill by means of their vote. You know, they can pass this bill with zero Democratic votes. That's basically what I mean. And we don't have any Democratic influence in the White House. Uh, so that's what I really mean. Their influence is due to the fact that they're members of Congress and that the public can see what's going on. It's, you know, the sausage making analogy you know when people said if you like sausage don't you know don't see how it's made because it's pretty gross so uh we're going through that sausage making process right now so one of the things i think you know democrats can do is introduce amendments to the bill um and really tackle down the flaws of the bill so the public can see so one of the things i think mark mentioned about a democrat introduce a bill to make every member of Congress have to purchase this insurance. Uh, whatever the plan is, you and your family have to be on it. Uh, of course, that got voted down. <laughs> they also put in a measure saying that the bill would automatically self-destruct if it did not meet the promises that Donald Trump put in the bill, which is uh, more people cover, lower costs, um, and it doesn't add to the deficit. You know, like if it doesn't meet those three criteria, which you said this bill would do, then the bill is invalid, which seems reasonable, right? Like you, all those criteria. Of course, the bill doesn't meet any of those criteria. <laughs> so, of course, it got voted down. So I'm just saying, obviously, as a public relations thing, you can honestly be universally opposed to it, which I think is a great point that they are. And like if, if any Democrat voted for this, that's an issue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What are the Democrats can do? I'm so What's that? You said, what are your thoughts? Who, which one of us? Uh, any, of, any of you. So, I mean, the Republicans don't have voting power, but I do think they are doing the right thing by forcibly opposing it. But I think they need to take another step, and that's another one of those Republican things. They need to go public with why they're opposing it. They need to scream from the, the top of their lungs every freaking thing wrong with this thing they can find. I mean, I'm not even – at this point, because we have alternate facts, I start throwing some alternate facts in there too, you know. If you come up with this bill, they won't let you have an abortion, but they'll let you eat the babies. I don't know. Just something crazy. Because people are in the crazy. I'm so serious. People are in the crazy. Crazy works for folks. So, you know, they need to go against this thing and they need to fight it tooth and nail all the way. They need to make this such an uphill battle. Yeah. That Because, I mean, you got to think. 
this is a political fight given, but it's going to affect everybody. And those people who are going to have to get this coverage or not get this coverage or whatever, they're going to be sitting at home. They don't really know what this bill says. They don't really know what it's talking about. And they don't really comprehend how it impacts them. And so if somebody's not on TV... Much like like the election. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Because I love reading these stories about how all these people who voted for Donald Trump are now upset. But he's taking my health care away. He said he was was going to do that. Yeah. One of the the few things that's not alternate facts. He said he was going to do that. Were you not listening? Well, you was too busy on a wall and emails. Okay. Thank so, you. And, but somebody needs to put these 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 legal things, these political things, in layman's terms, so that the people of the general public can understand what they are saying. Yeah. When they say defund uh, Planned Parenthood, that doesn't just mean abortion. Abortion is ten percent of what these people do. They provide a whole lot more just women's care in general, or care to disenfranchised populations in general. And they need to understand what that means. They also need to understand how that impacts you when you are, if a family member of yours has a mental illness, a stop at high blood pressure and, and diabetes. Mental illness isn't part of this, you know. And when you're dealing with, and if you know anything about mental health, that is an expensive field. The meds are crazy expensive. Oncology, cancer, those are very expensive things. Insurances can say, look, we know this is the best treatment. You went to all of these doctors out of pocket and paid for getting these people and getting these uh, these opinions, and they all agree this is the best treatment for you. But we don't want to pay for that because that's crazy expensive for us, yeah. and we'll lose money. And yeah. under this new bill, they will be able to do that. Yes. And it's all about semantics for me. I always look at the wordplay with this comes to the healthcare. Like, everything Xavier said, everything Derek said is just you know, on the on the money, because you know, I saw an article, and I don't know if it was a somebody took a snap a, a screenshot of a Facebook post, and I didn't know if it was real or not, but I think it was. I think I think it w- was real to a certain extent because certain news outlets picked up on it, where somebody was saying that they could not wait for the um for Trump to get in there and take down of Obamacare, and then so somebody else came in there and said so. so the comments were like, so you know. Somebody else used the term Affordable Care Act. And so then the person was like, no, the Affordable Care Act is this, Obamacare is this. And then everybody was like, wait, are you fucking serious? Do you, are you re- did you really just say that? They're like, no, Obam- Obamacare is this, and Affordable Care Act is something totally different. No, you fucking moron. The Affordable Care Act is Obamacare. So when somebody hears the word Obama, they're like, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Let's, get, let's, let's just tear it up and just get it out of there. But they don't realize that how that impacts them. And I get tired of seeing so many people coming to my damn um, job complaining about having the insurance taken and shit like that. And then they're the main ones sitting there saying, well, y'all got to give Trump a chance. He, yeah, he, he didn't give y'all no chance. He said he came there, he shit on y'all, and now he's been like, you know, dismount everything that y'all worked up, you know, works for. Because I know this one girl whose uh, daughter is very handicapped. And I'm like, you know, that insurance that you, you know, you claim that you know what, what she said was during the election was, I'm so glad that he ran. If I could vote for him, I'll vote for him two or three times if I could. And I'm thinking, like, you know, your daughter is going to get like no help Fuck. right now. Yeah. Fuck. 
And like, that's what pissed me. That's like what, yeah. Xavier said, putting it in layman's terms, your daughter is about to get bent over and fucked. <laughs> yes. And not in a pleasant way. And so it, it irks me. So it's all about semantics for me. And so if you just, you know, put like like Xavier said, put it in layman's terms, but just like take out the fear, but just put down the truth of the matter. Hell, Family Guy even did an episode about it. Remember when Lois ran from um, Mayor yeah. and she couldn't get it? Yeah, nine eleven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody was like, "Yeah, that's all it is. That's all it is, pretty much." Yeah, I, would say, I think the Republicans don't really know how much they're hurting themselves. Like I think Derek was mentioning, like they haven't read the bill. If they read the bill, they realize that most of the power of the Republican Party comes from this um, low population area. So I think there's a bias in our system built in in the Constitution to favor representation of small, least populated areas. So, you know, say, for example, Georgia, you know, there's uh, the very blue Atlanta area, but then you come out to the rest of the state, it's mostly red, except for some of the cities. And what one of the issues of health insurance coverage has to do with population, you know, like how large the pool of applicants are. So in rural areas, by definition, Healthcare costs are much higher because the pool is smaller. You have to take care of people, but you don't have a large pool of healthy people to help pay for them. So, just by definition, healthcare costs happen to be much higher in low density population areas, which happens to mostly vote Republicans. <laughs> you are fucking yourself up way more than you realize. <laughs> That's what's so fucked up is that the Democrats, when they're proposing the healthcare bill, were proposing a bill that helped Republicans. You think about it, and now they're you know now that they whipped up this political fervor to repeal it, and they're telling lies. Um, you know we talked about propaganda. Um, the the talking point that comes up the most is this thing called the death spiral. Have you heard that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like that, that, that Obamacare would implode on itself within two years right. anyway. Not true at all. And the second thing is the rebranding of the uh, Obamacare. Like I said, what's probably one of the biggest mistakes um, Democrats made uh, was allowing it to be called Obamacare. So I was going to propose a new name for it because I don't like Trump care, actually. It reminds me too much of Obamacare, which I think is just a failed PR thing. I was going to call it the Trump Wealthcare Act. <laughs> Basically saying, like, you, you get health care, but you have to have money. We're guaranteeing you coverage to get all these things. The difference is we're not going to pay. The problem is that's too long. Yeah. Or you need something simple that falls off, that, that flow, literally flows off the tongue really quickly. Or just take the Trump off. Which is why Trump care works. Trump care works. See, you can just call it wealth care. Either way, I think the the point is it needs, we need propaganda. <laughs> like Xavier was saying, you need, you know, to hit people emotionally like they did with death panels and so forth. So I think we shouldn't shy away from the tactics when the ends are good, you know? Um, just tell it like it is and, and tell it hitfully, accurately, you know, just try to make, you know, sum it up, don't dumb it down. That's what I want to say about it. But um, moving on to the next one, I, I think I'm just going to um, play a little bit of the newscast that we had. There's going to be a couple stories, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Here we go. 
King Kong has been around almost as long as Hollywood itself. The first Kong movie was in 1933, and from its inception, it's always been loaded with some ugly racial subtext. Ridiculous caricatures of natives, white men protecting a white woman from the savages, and a giant dangerous black creature from the jungle. Every one of the King Kong movies has the same basic setup. There's a ship of explorers in search of a mysterious uncharted place called Skull Island. An island hidden by a perpetual fog bank. Never seen by human eye nor walked by human foot. (laughs) That clip was from the 1976 version of Kong. As in the other four versions, Skull Island is usually located somewhere vaguely near Indonesia, even though... It seems to be inhabited by savages who look suspiciously like black people decked out in full movie cannibal chic, loincloths and spears and drums. And they become entranced invariably by the absolutely irresistible woman traveling with the explorers. He says, look at the golden woman. Yeah, blondes are scarce around here. That blonde, Faye Ray in the 1933 original, Jessica Lange in the 1976 remake, and later Naomi Watts in Peter Jackson's 2005 retelling is kidnapped by the natives who sacrifice her to their titanic gorilla god. Kong, the giant rampaging ape who somehow happens to have a deep cross-species preference for flaxen-haired white ladies. And this is where the racial antenna goes up for people like Robin Means Coleman. She's a professor at the University of Michigan who has studied King Kong and racial representation over the years. King Kong was clearly also a metaphor for race, for Black masculinity. That's the low-hanging fruit of Black metaphors. Coleman says you can draw a direct line from The Birth of a Nation, that defining 1915 film about the Black male threat to white women and coincidentally the movie that helped resurrect the Ku Klux Klan, and King Kong in 1933. King Kong premiered at a time when Black men were regularly depicted as ape-like. It was during the beginning of the Great Migration when thousands and thousands of Black people were leaving the South to move to the nation's biggest cities. This is, again, a big Black man, right? A big Black ape who is absolutely obsessed with whiteness and particularly white women. That has to be cut down. So can you make a movie about King Kong without perpetuating these creepy racial undertones? Let's look at the newest movie, Kong Skull Island. The woman is now a strawberry blonde, played by Brie Larson, who is mostly besides the point this time. The natives in this movie don't talk in any Oonga Boonga speak because they actually don't speak at all. And the big bad black guy is Sam Jackson an American military commander who wants revenge against Kong. Alyssa Rosenberg is a culture critic at The Washington Post. A literal African-American man versus a metaphorical stand-in for Black American men. It's meant to steer clear of the idea that white men are protecting a white woman from the stand-in for Black men. Rosenberg said that Kong is kind of an anti-colonial figure in this latest film. He's protecting his island and its inhabitants from violent invaders. But still... It's King Kong. Right. And I think the movie is trying really hard to have the awesome big monster fights without stepping into any of those racial implications. But I think they're just unavoidable. So, yeah, King Kong, a hundred foot tall gorilla who can go toe to toe with military choppers, Godzilla, Charles Grodin and Sam Jackson. But the ideas that spawned him have proven much harder to smack down. Gene Demby, NPR News.
Okay, this is bullshit. That didn't take long. Um, no, no, it's because okay, we I'm not gonna sit here and act like King Kong wasn't some metaphor because we said my mom and dad used to watch King Kong when I was a kid. It was so me like this is what we used to watch growing up. And I sat there and said, Why do black folks look like you know, like they get no, you know, so that was then. This is now. You go into the theater to sit there and come into the theater with like, you know, this history of King Kong as a racist, you know, metaphor and shit like that. That's like that's like Siskel and Eber going into a Friday 13 movie, knowing they're not gonna like this damn movie, and then coming out of it just finding every goddamn thing wrong with it. Because that's because they, they're not gonna support this movie. I don't I mean, I don't know. It's just like I have a problem with it because I can't. I don't know because I'm not gonna sit to say the with the uh, the female talking in the clip was black or white, but for the sake of this conversation, she sounded as if she was white. She probably the blackest female that we know. I just don't know. I can't. I can't look at a picture of her, for her. But it was just the whole concept of like I did. I mean, looking at the trailer, I didn't sit there and say like, you know, there is you know. Samuel Jackson is like, you know, this bad black person or like, or, you know, cause it's more than one black person in the movie, you know what I'm saying? And they're, they're military, you know what I'm saying? They're not one of the natives and they're fighting fucking monsters. And I haven't seen the movies. So I can't just give you a full, you know, defense of the movie, but it just seems like that they like saying, well, you can't have a King Kong movie without some type of racial undertone under it. But I'm like, if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find. Right. I think the reason they're saying that is because it is a remake of the original King Kong. It's a what? It's a remake. It's a remake of the original King Kong. So, by definition, it's going to have those racial undertones because the original movie has. And I think. And I agree with that to a point. The original movie, I did. I can see the racial undertones, and I get that. And I agree with it. I, I do think they exist. I think the remake gets away from a lot of those racial undertones, though. But I think it's kind of like uh, birds of a. It's like you're part of the crowd, so you're all the crowd, kind of a deal. It's, it's hard to. It's hard to. It's hard to shed. It's hard to shed that because it's still King Kong. Right. Right. And it it's is, still this it big is, black ape. It's still about this big black ape in love with this blonde hair, blue eyed white woman. Yeah. There you go. And that's what I was saying. I think the the story to me, the way I listened to it, was they were doing everything they could to avoid that instead of making it, you know, or at least trying. And they're just saying, like, it's unavoidable. I don't think they were saying that the movie was bad. No, I I, I can't. friends that went to go see it, they said they really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, think I'm it, not saying that the movie's going to be bad. I'm just saying that when you go into something with that mindset, that that's what you're going to find. It's kind of like when you. Yeah, I know my boyfriend's cheating on me. I know he's cheating on me. And then you go and find some shit to sit there. You're not you're not going to stop until you find some piece of evidence to sit there and say that your boyfriend is cheating on you. So I get oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I think at the end of that conclusion was, but it's okay. You know, that's what I got from it, which is to say that, yeah, there are these racial undertones. Uh, you know, acknowledge them, don't pretend like they don't exist, and enjoy the movie. <laughs> like, but you can't do that if you feel. Yeah, it. no, 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 no. No, you can't no. do that because why would you sit to say acknowledge them, but enjoy the movie? But you can't because it's like it's reaffirming something that is going to make you go piss you off when you walk up out the goddamn theater. I'm just saying, like I think in the current movie they did everything they could to 
do away with then stop then don't make then don't make the movie and honestly i don't understand why they remade remade king kong again they just made it literally three years ago yeah no, that's a, that is a, another story literally three years ago and it didn't do well, well I'm, not, I'm not a fan of kong either i'm just gonna say like that but i'm just saying if you are and you want to see a bunch of big you know monsters but you know i've i've had this i've had this conversation with uh, one of one of our fans and occasional contributors, Legionnaire, many times about a movie I will not go see because of some racial bullshit. And his thing is always, Derek, just enjoy the movie. But I can't enjoy the movie. I can't enjoy Fantastic Beasts and where to find them because the one time we are allowed to be magical Negroes, there are no magical Negroes. Yeah. I can't go watch, um, what's this one? That just the woman was, she was magical. Who? The the leader of the American Covenant. She was magical. She was black. Was she? I yes. looked at the post, I couldn't tell. Okay. So they had one. Okay. So they had one. They had right. more than so one. Lisa, I think they, they had they Lisa they Lisa turtled her. Who? I'm okay with that. And she was the leader of the American Covenant. I recognize that. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. I recognize that. Now I, if y'all um, wanted a movie to have a fight about, then Get Out should have been the one. That should have been the one. Why was that a fight? That shit is bullshit. There, that right, we talking about racial right. undertones. Right. Now that's there's right. your racial undertones right, right. there. Get right. out. Come on. Wait, wait. Okay. Okay. I have not seen Get right. Out yet, but I want, and I didn't want to spoil. But I need to have this conversation. Wait, hold up. What do you mean the racial? I mean that's. I mean, I, I guess. Did you like Get Out? I thought that was the whole. Okay, yeah, because I need to. I need to hear examples. Yeah. Did you like Get Out? So she has this interracial boyfriend. And the family keeps saying and doing these little awkward things to say, you know, we're cool with this. We think it's really kind of jazzy and neat and everything. But then every so often some little uncomfortable thing will happen, this little uncomfortable silence or an uncomfortable statement is made that is somewhat racial in nature. But it's that absent minded. We don't know. We are drawing attention to your color by saying this kind of thing. Um, all for this to come to find out she's manipulated him into meeting her parents and the crazy foolishness of this of, of her family. Spoiler alert for Eric. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert for all those. I mean, things. I'm not saying I'm not saying anything else. I'm just saying <laughs> you you can get that. Yeah, I'm just saying. No, I'm but just isn't saying that the, the point? And again, without having seen it. Isn't that the whole point of the movie? Because I've read a number of things in the movie without having the movie spoiled for me. But one of the things is that we live in these uncomfortable silences. From what I understand, the movie is supposed to be about white liberalism and yeah. how it itself is the enemy. Yeah, it's it's a, it's it's about like that. All that you just said, Xavier, is the point. It's just because what um, Jordan Peele he calls them social thrillers and that means yes. it's like it's supposed to give you that you know that because that's the that's the scary part is just the fuck fact that like, we experience this shit on a daily basis i experienced it by me being the only black li- male black librarian possibly in all the state of tennessee possibly possibly i don't know yeah. i mean i've seen about two or three other black guys but i don't know if they just you know there to be supportive or something like that or what but i this whole scene when he went to the party and everybody was saying this shit, I get this shit all the goddamn time. 
because I'm surrounded by white people all day of day long. And then it's like, I'm this big, like, you know, commodity. So I got, I got this. So, I mean, that was racial undertone, but it was like really just like in your face because that's what's supposed to be done. But with, I haven't seen Kong, so I haven't, I can't speak on it, but I wasn't trying to say that the movie is bad. I was just saying that you, I mean, the, the people trying to say the movie is bad. I was just saying that shit. Um, I mean, it's not like they. It's okay. I would say something. I would. I would say. I would give two other instances of movies where it was like a racial undertone and whatnot. There's a movie called The The Dead. It's a zombie apocalyptic film that takes place only in the continent of Africa. So all the zombies are black people. Okay. And there's this other African man trying to find his younger brother, his son. And this white man who was like the two heroes. And then the other incident is the Resident Evil 5, yeah. which took place in Africa. So most of the zombies and creatures were black. And that was an issue about that. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to ask you this, though. Um, this brought up a question. It was uh, something that Derek mentioned, you know, talking about uh, his conversations with Legionnaire and saying, like, for instance, Resident Evil 5 was one of my favorite games. <laughs> I really did. It was creepy as fuck, even though all the villains were black people. <laughs> I recognize the racial undertones in it, but I love the game. How do you feel about those sorts of things where it's a movie or a show that clearly has some racial insensitivity or even outright racist undertones? Because I remember having an argument with a friend I was seeing at the time going to see 300. That was maybe a movie example. Um, he hated the idea of the Greeks just slaughtering all these brown people, you know? And glorifying it. I was just like, I just want to see a really hot action movie. <laughs> and you know what? And there's and that's okay, and there's nothing wrong with that. But understand you then can't complain later on yes. about the messages that Thank are you. sent out because you are supporting it. Because you. you want to see some pretty eye candy. One a, a, a show that continues to both put me on my ass in laughter and put me on my knowledge is Blackish. No. Next episode of Blackish was insanely hysterical and and poignant. It yeah. was called the name of the episode is called Toys Are Not Us. <laughs> and and in the episode, Diane, the youngest daughter, it's her birthday, and one of the neighbors gives her this equivalent of American Girl doll. White doll of this woman who was a doctor during um, I can't think of what time it is, but like in the 1600s, 1700s. And so Diane and her mother go back to the store to exchange this white doll because they explain to the neighbor that they have to exchange this doll. They have a black to white ratio of dolls and everything else characters of TV shows, um, stuff like that. And no, and even though they nobody eats it, they buy Count Chocula cereal every time they go to the store. Plus <laughs> his last name is Chocula. Um, so Rainbow and Diane go back to the store to exchange this dial. They have thousands of white dials. They have a number of handicapable dials. And then they have two black dials. One who is a runaway slave who taught herself kind of how to read, and the other one is a doll named Selma who marched in Selma. 
But hey, that's but that's the truth. As a librarian, the only two black girls, well, I, well they just a third black girl, but I don't know what her thing is. But he's right. There is Addie the slave, the, the, the former slave girl, and there is Melody who is takes place in the civil rights movement. So hey, it's it's factual. Yeah. But I was gonna say, um, with the whole um like what you just said, what Derek said, you know, about having to enjoy something because i knew so many people who was ride or die for like mad men they're like you know mad men is this mad men is that i'm like mad men i watched the first two mad men celebrated a whole lot of shit i couldn't fuck that's what i was saying i'm like what's so good about this show because they were everybody kept talking about um and everybody because these same people are the ones hitting yelling and i'm not saying you can't do both let me put that out there right now i'm not saying that you can't do both but you can't also look at get mad with somebody sit there and give you that little you know look yeah. like you know because what's that boy like what's that man like don draper don draper represented the quintessential make america great again white man mm. yes, he, God. yes he did he represented everything i mean this everybody was sitting there calling his wife a bitch this motherfucker has um shirts in his damn drawer for what he could put on the next day after he leave his other side chick's house but he, but yeah. she's the bitch. You know what I'm saying? She's the asshole. She's the, she's the villain. He's here's, the, here's the deal about Mad Men. I, I know I, I don't watch the show either. I watch basically the same episodes you did. But my understanding of the story was that he was an anti-hero. Right? Like these were, he was the villain. I mean, that was my understanding. What, what did you get from that? Man, I guess it depends on who you ask. Who you ask, because there's some people who, I mean, Freddy Krueger is an anti-villain, but you're not going to sit there and, like, want to sit there and have drinks with his ass or some shit like that. I mean, um, he became an anti-hero. I'm just saying that Don Draper had people want to emulate his style. They yeah. wanted to, you know, they did anything he did, they rooted. Like, he would sit there and do some real scrupulous-ass shit. And he was fucking up his family, and they, you know his folks, his family was going through some shit by the shit that he was doing. Yeah. And so I looked at that like, if you want to sit there and say about racial undertones and stuff like that and whatnot, done Mad Men was something I was waiting for somebody to sit there and say, why are we sitting here worshiping? Um, hell, I'm gonna sit there and just really somebody might get my ass for this, but I don't care because I somebody raised this question up on the Tumblr feed, and I sat there and said, you know what? Sunderland shows. Okay. Derek? <laughs> I'm going to take it there because Olivia Pope mm-hmm. and Annalise Keaton, mm-hmm. they both are running after white men. Keep going. And even Annalise Keaton, she is a bisexual woman, and the one woman she sleeps with is a white woman. The one woman that we know of. The one woman we know of, with, the one woman, white yes. woman. But, but, oh. no, I'm sorry, go ahead. And so, somebody wrote the question to me, like, you know, um, why are they going after all these, why, why these white women, why, why these black women, these Shonda shows going after all these white men and all this stuff like that? Now, at first, I was like, you know what? I don't have a problem with it. But wasn't Annalise sleeping with Billy Blanks? He's sleeping with Billy Blanks, but see, that's not enough for some people. It's just the fact that she sat there and selected a white man to marry, and then she went and slept with um, Billy, who was married. And so she's a homewrecker and a bisexual homewrecker or some shit like that. There is a a real simple answer to the interracial question. Um, And this was actually something that I was hoping we'd talk about 
when it came to talking about horror, but just talking about drama and romance in general. Oh, we can talk about horror and um, race all damn day long. That's my bread and butter. That's what I'm studying right now. But I'm going to tell you basically the theory. I didn't come up with this. We can discuss it about why women in particular like black women to date white men. And what it is, is that whiteness represents power. I mean, that was the ultimate point about Scandal was. And I, 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 was, gonna get, I was getting to the end. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I say the whole point of scandal and the, the reason it took off the way it was is because it tickled this part. I think they called it the. Um, it, there was a book called uh, a billion. I'm trying to think the name of it. Um, a billion dirty thoughts that was talking about the internet use scanning internet searches for what really turns people on, uh, male and female. And one of the major things that women find attractive about men is power. Um, and so in our society, in our culture, you know, power is represented by whiteness. Um, and so I think part of the reason why those exist is not just saying that, um, you know, if the president were black, I mean, it would kind of have that same um, sort of undertone to it too. But I'm just saying that the reason they chose white men for these powerful women because it, it tickles a certain romantic um, emotional feeling from women generally to have a woman with a very powerful man. Whether he be you know what yeah go you, ahead. Know what's, you know what's interesting hmm. is that the reason that that that, that visualization exists hmm. is because you enjoyed um, uh, what's the name of the thing the movie was just about oh. um, the one about the zombies. Oh, you mean uh, Resident Evil Five? You mean the, yeah, the movie game? The movie game? Yeah. Resident Evil Five. Okay. I mean, it's kind of come full circle. That's what I'm about you to watch, say. You watch and enjoy a movie that that perpetrates whiteness equals power, mm-hmm. and that's an issue for me. And then, then there's the conversation that we have that. Well, it's because it's out here that whiteness equals power. Well, that exists because you're okay sitting in a movie, paying for a movie, where, you know, whiteness is equal in power. And I'm, and I'm Derek, picking on you particularly, Malcolm, because you're not the only person that went, you, not the only person that went to go see the movie. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So obviously, <laughs> oh, well, I want to... I'm just saying, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable acknowledging it. That was the whole point of this whole thing was... That these things exist, and not let's not sweep them under the rug. Well, let's have a conversation about it. And not, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's my issue, though, is that to bring it back, like Derek said, full circle. I guess I'm just the type of person where when somebody says a gorilla, I and my instinct, my my own personal mind frame does not equate myself to a fucking gorilla. Or anybody like anybody on this panel, anybody black that I know, I do not equate them to a gorilla because that's what white people say. I'm thinking that we have. I mean, I say we can't get. We have to get away from that, but it's just the whole concept of we should acknowledge it, but just be like, you know, I'm not going to attach my name to that. I'm not going to attach my person to that. Yeah. And so when it comes to the whole, uh, where black people like to look, the um, white men represent power, then why? Why do we give that? Why do we feed into that? You know what I'm saying? Like, wh- why can't a black man also represent power? Because he, what's his name? Ellison on Scandal, he was powerful in some type, in some sense. You know what I'm saying? But she just didn't chose him because I guess he didn't have the level of power. 
but at the same time, I just look at it like, cause be honest with you, Ellison, Ellis, what that what that boy name is? They called him um, Pudding Pop on the um, After Buzz TV um, show. They used to call him Pudding Pop just because they can't remember his name. But maybe because he was just dull, he was just dull as fuck. And just go back to the Billy character on How to Get Away with Murder. He is this quintessential man that really Annalise cannot have because yeah. one, he was married. And yeah. two, you know, what they were doing wasn't, you know, she was married, so she couldn't have him. So I, I don't know. I just feel like we it's just I, but I think I, I I think a point is being missed with both of those characters that at the end of the day, they are act they are actually the power. When Olivia falls short, it's because Olivia forgets she is the powerful. Yeah. When Annalise falls short, it is because Annalise forgets that she is the powerful one. Yeah. Remember, but in, in, in many of those in, in many of those relationships, um, you know, who, who, this black woman, yes, she is this black woman having an affair with this white man that is the president. But who's coming to whose fucking house? Exactly. Yeah. Who's showing up at whose fucking door? Who sat there spent over what two was it two hundred million dollars to find her to, to get her ass out to get her ass out that situation? Yeah. Yes. Um with with with, with Annalise. Black um, men do represent power on TV though. The problem is what kind of power do we represent? Yeah. And it's usually yeah. drug dealers or head of record labels or, or you know, or sports, you know. We're not, we don't, there's no shows that represent us as being all that powerful we, we um, physical power. in the mainstream society. I was going to say, many, in many conversations, because this goes back to Get Out, black men represent physical power very much so. I mean, yeah, yeah definitely. Physical strength, yeah. yeah. So one of the things that they talked about in, in horror movies, why the black person gets killed, is because black people represent physical power. You kill the black person, the villain becomes that much more scary. Like if you, yeah, no, this is not my theory. I'm just saying this is, you know, smarty chance people's theories that I happen to agree with. That you know, black men represent a physical threat, a physical barrier, and the the, the villain kills the black guy. Then you're like, what chance do I have? They kill him bigger. You know, <laughs> like what am I gonna do? But I, just, uh, I mean, think about it. That's even in real life. But I mean, think about it, Mark. That's real life for you. When those police officers have shot black men, unarmed or armed, they've always said, "I was afraid for my life." Yeah, well, they were yeah. afraid because they felt like this person could overpower me. Irregardless of all the other evidence, they first thing they'll say out their mouths is, "The way we were, I was afraid for my life that he was going to overpower me and take my gun." Yeah. Well, for the context of this um, conversation, I can see where that fits in. But I was just saying that their theory is one theory because... Yeah, one theory. Not, a, only that, not only that, it doesn't necessarily apply to every movie. Remember no. that. Right? So it, it is born in that reality. But it, it manifests itself in different films in different ways. So not every time a black person dies is it because they represent blackness. You can just be no. they admire movies and they follow the genre. But I'm saying, for real, for real, this is where it came from. <laughs> just, 
I well, we could we could actually that might be Friday. Well, no, I don't know about Friday because that's Iron Fist. I don't know, but we'll see. Um, but I'm, if we do have a hangout Friday, that was going to be my next topic because I'm listening to a podcast now called Girls Will Be Ghouls. Yeah. It's with two black girls talking about the horror genre, and I'm on episode probably 14 right now, and they just literally had this conversation about black people in horror movies and why do they die first, and is it even a trope or is it just something that it just yeah, became okay. a trope and whatnot. So I'm very I can I got I got you know tons of um stuff about that to discuss. So I was gonna say that listen to the interview they did with Jordan Peele on Morning Edition. That's where I got that from. Jordan Peele was the one who was talking about that. And he's brilliant, by the way. Yeah, he's brilliant. Um, speaking of which, I just want to this one of anybody knew. I mean, I didn't know until Malcolm told me that I didn't know both Jordan Peele and um, Keegan. What's his name? Um, Michael Keegan, or yeah, something like that. They're both they're both their um, wives are white. Not a problem. It's just that I didn't know because some people are saying like, why would you make a movie like this and your wife is white or some shit like this? So what does this say about you? They're both interracial as well. <laughs> Yeah, but see, a lot of people don't know that. <laughs> see, they, just, they just go from seeing their skin tone and they go and see their wives are white, and then they just go like, ah! So I was going to talk about that also Friday, too. It's, it's, it's one of those things that we talked about one one time is that black people who have white parents are way more racially aware just because of the fact that they they have it in their own home. You, know? you have to be. Yeah, you ha- you're black in a white home. Like, yeah, you can recognize race from a very early age. You never are away from it. So, I mean, it doesn't make you a great person because you can go in either direction, but it makes you racially aware <laughs> real quick. So, I would say that includes Barack Obama. <laughs> Get down to it. Um, his book, Dreams for My Father, was a lot about that. I mean, anyway. <laughs> um, I did want to move on to um, another topic, but I really enjoyed that discussion, by the way. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Trump administration and some of the jobs that are missing. Specifically, I'm uh, talking about this uh, thing that Steve Bannon said. I'm going to go ahead and play the clip and we'll talk about it. On side. President Trump has yet to fill hundreds of senior level positions throughout the government. He's questioned the need for, as he put it, all those jobs. But simply leaving posts vacant may not be the best way to accomplish what his advisor Stephen Bannon has called deconstructing the administrative state. NPR's Brian Naylor has more. When he spoke last month at the Conservative Political Action Conference, Chief White House strategist Steve Bannon laid out three goals of the Trump presidency, national security and sovereignty, economic nationalism, and this. The third, broadly, line of work is what is deconstruction of the administrative state. Let's deconstruct that term for a moment. The term administrative state is typically used to describe overregulation. Joseph Postel teaches political science at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and has written about the topic. Sometimes it's even used to describe the rise of administrative agencies and the number of agencies that we have. 
There are some 1,100 executive branch jobs that require Senate confirmation, and so far Trump has nominated just a handful. For instance, none of the deputy secretaries or undersecretaries at the Department of State have been named. The number three job at the Pentagon is unfilled. Two key posts overseeing Trump's immigration crackdown are held by acting directors. No FEMA director or TSA administrator has been named, and other high-level posts at the Treasury, the Department of Justice, and Department of Health and Human Services also remain vacant. Paul Light, a professor of public service at NYU, calls this a neckless government. The agency heads are in place, but little more. When you have uh, a necklace government, when you're missing all those positions between the cabinet secretaries and the sort of day-to-day work of government, government is basically frozen. But maybe the president wants it that way. This is what he told Fox News Channel's Fox and Friends last week. A lot of those jobs I don't want to appoint because they're unnecessary to have. You know, we have so many people in government. Even me, I look at some of the jobs and it's people over people over people. I say, what do all these people do? You don't need all those jobs. Now, Light says the federal leadership hierarchy has been thickening, as he puts it, for the last 50 years. But he adds if Trump wants to change that, he's going about it the wrong way. He's making a mistake if he thinks that leaving uh, many of these positions open is going to enhance his control of government. It doesn't. I'm a believer in flattening the federal hierarchy, but I do not think you do it by accident. Joseph Postel says administrative state critics believe that federal agencies have grown too big and also have too much power, including the power to essentially write their own laws. He notes this is not new. The size of government and the amount of regulation that we have in America have always been objects of dispute, going all the way back to Hamilton and Jefferson in the 1790s. What has changed that has given rise to the administrative state is essentially the accumulation of all of these powers in the hands of people who are not directly elected by the people. So it may be that Trump is trying to return power to lawmakers from what critics often call unelected bureaucrats. But Postel says dismantling the administrative state requires Congress to act to rein in agencies and won't be achieved simply by leaving important government posts unfilled. Brian Naylor, NPR News, Washington. All right. So that was something that kind of disturbed me a little while ago, talking about deconstructing the administrative state. And I, I like the breakdown of what that really means and what conservatives think about it. Um, what are your uh, what were some of your thoughts on that? Anyone on the panel? I'm um, confused. Still. I'm still trying to figure out what did he do? I'm, I'm just being honest. Okay. <laughs> What do you say? What do you say? What did he do? What do you mean? I mean, what is what is what is what is Steve Bannon do now? Because I tried to listen to it, but it just like they just jumped into it. I'm like, wait a minute, what's the you know? Okay, so let me break it down a little bit. Um, I think this was about two weeks ago when Steve Bannon went to the CPAC conference and explained why he made the appointments or you know what the strategy out of the White House is because he's the White House man. and many of the things that Trump is talking about from basically because agrees with his ideology and so forth. Um, so one of the things that he said they they're both making these appointments like uh, Betsy DeVos, Secretary, um, the EPA guy, I can't remember the name, HSS Secretary, all the people had in common was their goals were to reduce the size of their agency. It's all um, 
to say publicly come out against those agencies and wanted to see their budget shrink. Um, when he introduces his budget coming forward, he's he's introducing huge cuts. We're talking like twenty five percent cuts to many of these agencies to give everybody huge tax break, you know, and to increase military spending by ten percent. So that hasn't really happened yet, but he's setting it up with government agencies who will, you know, people in charge who agree with his policy of cutting the agency. Because, I mean, obviously when you cut an agency, the, the person in charge of it is going to usually give you pushback. He's trying to put people in place who will not get pushback. And they're, oh. they're also not filling these jobs because they know they're going to cut them. They're setting it up to cut the jobs, right? And okay. Strength the size of government. This is one of their major national interests. He said it was up to like, you know, economic nationalism, which is you know, favoring American-made goods over foreign goods, taxing tariffs, all that kind of stuff. American sovereignty, which is a strong military, um, building a wall, all that stuff, and deconstructing the administrative state. That's their three primary objectives for the Trump administration. So. Is yeah. to make the to make the administration run like a business. Yeah, of course. And they laid it out for you, and I was just like, "Is nobody listening to this? This is driving me crazy." Like, no, they was worried about her emails and yeah. fucking walls and shit. No, yeah, because the Mexicans, because the Mexicans are taking my jobs. You know, I want to be out picking them fucking avocados, but I can't because the Mexican is doing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, that's some bullshit. And that includes NPR, what we were talking about before. These deep cuts that are coming. Um, so there is no so so I I I agree with the I I agree with the guy on the thing. There hmm. is a way to do that. Do it. You have to do a controlled destruction. When you blow up a building, you don't just place dynamite around the building and hope for the fucking bats. Exactly. <laughs> they do what they call a controlled explosion. Exactly. Control detonation so that you can make sure to take the building out with as little damage to everything else as fucking possible. Yeah. A person in charge of FEMA right now. Right. Like, there's what? a blizzard coming to New York. And to the, yeah, that's what the thing said. There's nobody in charge just, of FEMA I'm right sorry, now. I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. So, <laughs> so, if, so if some bullshit happens, if some natural nature bullshit happens, there's nobody in charge of FEMA. Exactly. So let me ask y'all this before um, somebody posts this on Facebook, and I'm back on Facebook. I know this. Who gives a shit? But anyway, um, somebody's posted because I've been seeing this on my a lot of my like friends' timeline, like on the news feeds and stuff. They're saying, in case anyone is getting too sidetracked by the Russian spy drama, and again, you can sit there and understand what the hell is going on with the Russian spy drama and stay focused on shit going on here in America. They said the following oh, bills have been introduced. One, HR A61, terminate the Environmental Protection Agency. Two, HR 610, vouchers for public education. HR 899, terminate the Department of Education. HJR 69, repeal rule protecting wildlife. Um, HR 370, repeal Affordable Care Act. HR 354, defund Planned Parenthood. HR 785, national right to work. Uh, this one is unions. HR 83 mobilizing against sanctuary cities bill. HR 147 criminalizing abortion, aka the pre prenatal non discrimination act. 
and HR 808 sanctions against Iran. So is that all going into what you're saying, Malcolm? Like they're trying to like that's on the um, congressional side. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Get out of I'm sorry. I'm just trying to figure out. No, that's all the Republican agenda. Um, yeah, I, I don't think many of those are going to pass, but I'm just saying they're laying out what their policy goals are. They're not saying that they're going to succeed at it, but yes, that's what they want to do. Yeah. So, so Mark, go back and read those one one at a time. Okay. Um. HR 861 terminate the Environmental Protection Agency. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the person that has been put in charge of the EPA, the worst that's yeah. been confirmed to be in charge of the EPA, is the one that sued the AP, EPA. Because why do we really need an EPA? Yeah. He's been put yeah. in charge. I, I, I knew that. I knew that one. Okay. Uh, H- HR 610, Vouchers for Public Education. I know this one too because the bitch in charge of public educating. <laughs> this is this goes for uh, two yeah. and three, which is HR 899, terminate the Department of Education. President. So, uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. She don't believe in, she believes in charter schools. Yeah. If, um, if Congress, and again, I think. Yeah. If Congress passes that, the president will sign it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think I've stated before what my problem with charter schools are is that there is absolutely zero oversight to them. Nobody is in charge. The person in charge of that charter school is whoever's running that charter school. And there are no definitive guidelines for those charter schools. Right. Yeah. This is, and then, yeah, okay, so that. Also, I was going to say there's never been a national charter school program or vouchers. And it is something that they want to do. They want to defund public schools. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. The other one was um, HJR 69 repeal rule protecting wildlife. Yes. That goes, yeah. And that one, um, I think, has already been started on the executive level. Having, because um, I, I remember when President Obama was leaving office, um, it was, I believe, one of his last acts to grant uh, protective status to large bodies of water, particularly yeah. um, for protection. But go ahead. Yeah. So they removed um, that. So that is part of what they removed when he approved the pipeline. Yeah, it is true. The pipeline, yes, also, but when, you know, the whole thing about getting the coal mines going again, mm-hmm. you know, he removed the, 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 the safeties yeah. that you can't dump in the rivers and shit. Oh, for real? Wait a minute. Time out. Time out. Time out. Because there's this big movement going around here in, in town and all of West Tennessee yeah. because they're trying to get factories here and the factories want to dump in the um in the Tennessee River and the, the Fork of Deer River. Which is well, where a lot of, but and see, the, but but everybody who was pushing this to like to, to for them not to dump are hardcore Trump. Supporters. Yeah, they are because it's their backyard, and not only that, Tennessee yeah. also has a huge coal industry. The only problem is that the coal in Tennessee is trapped in mountains, right? So yeah. Literally, one of the things they want to do that affects the state of Tennessee is blowing up mountains to release no. coal. <laughs> no, it's like. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry, I can I know what you're about to say because driving down I-40, yeah, any part of East Tennessee, going to I-40, you have to go through areas where they tell you they have signs saying "Be careful," like you know. I've, been, like, I've been through that. Yeah, that shit is scary. First of all, let me say that shit. Driving through that shit is scary. It's fucking scary. It is frightening. 
and driving through there at night is especially frightening. And somebody had to explain to me what the runoffs were on the road. That's when the truck go out of control, but it can drive up the fucking mountain to yeah. gain control. Yeah, no, that shit's fucked up. And I stopped driving through that part of Tennessee. I have no choice. If I want to go to Knoxville or try to get down to Atlanta or something like that, I have to go through those mountains. That yeah. shit's not kosher. So that's they need to stop with that bullshit. But um, the, go ahead. <laughs> mountaintop, um, mountaintop mining is kind of what they call it, but it's, it's literally like you know, exploding the tops of mountains and then putting that waste into rivers and streams and so forth. Because most of it is just dirt. You know, it is. But a lot of it is also coal dust. That you just release into the atmosphere because you fucking blew up a mountain. Because <laughs> like it reduces air quality, it poisons people and animals. And it should be known that the, with this recent wildfire that happened back in um like this past November or yeah. whenever it happened, that shit can also escalate. That was a that was a state emergency for for a moment there because a lot of people lost their lives and lost their properties and lost you know a lot of wildlife was killed. And a lot of area was damaged, you know. So that's like tourists. That's that hit the tourism um pockets too. It probably didn't seem like we went up there this past February though, but it you know it did. But anyway, then there's the Affordable Care Act, and then the defund Planned Parenthood, which is pretty much all in one thing. Then they have HR seven eight five National Right to Work, and they have in parentheses this one okay. is unions. Yeah, because so yeah. So oh, go ahead. Bro. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say that the right to work is their branding. For making people not have to pay unions to benefit from union benefits. So you, you work at a place, if you benefit from union negotiations, then make you pay for that. Because you're de facto in that union because you work for that company, which is represented by this union. And they're saying, no, you don't have to pay them. They do all the work, all the administrative stuff to get you health care, better hours, better everything, and you don't have to pay them a dime. That kills unions. Yeah. Because my mom was in a union. She was in a union, though, but she's not in one now. But I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a good thing, especially for writers, just saying. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a major thing because I can negotiate prices when I'm mm-hmm. at freelance work. That shit really fucking matters. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, that's going to probably fuck up the damn writer's strike if they do have one. <laughs> so, uh, the writer's union is a real thing because I, I often have to negotiate prices when I'm doing freelance stuff. And mm-hmm. it makes it just. Plain and simple. Look at this grid. Here's my price. Yeah. Okay. HR eighty three mobilizing against sanctuary cities deal. Yeah. So they would be allowed to send, and he talked about this before, uh, creating a creating a force within Homeland Security. So basically, he is now creating stormtroopers that would be allowed to go into sanctuary cities and just yank motherfuckers out their home. I mean, actually, ICE is doing it now. There's a lot of stories going around about people dropping their kids off at school, and they drop the kids off, and ICE agents descend from nowhere and snatch them the fuck up. Yeah, we're going to actually talk about that coming up. I got to Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and go to the last two, then so we can get to the last two. We're criminalizing abortion, prenatal, non discrimination act, and sanctions against Iran. Yeah. So, yeah, all those things are initiatives of the Trump administration. And I, I think there was another one which they didn't criminalize um, the Freedom of Religion Act. Which, yeah. Yeah, that, that is on the list, too. I mean, they, they want to make bigotry legal. 
Right, yeah. Yeah. We can't say these candles, sir, because my, my my Lord and Savior Satan said that these candles need to be used for something else. See, this is, but see, this is the problem. They don't go in the other direction, and I think that's what we as a people need to start doing. Exactly. Because it doesn't cost. It doesn't cost much. I think it's only two hundred dollars. You need you need two hundred dollars. You need a place, a physical place, and like twelve members to start an actual religion. Yeah, mm-hmm. an actual religion, and I think we need to start doing that. Yeah, I think we need to start fighting fire with exactly. fire. Exactly, we can do a church. We meet every Sunday. Yep, yeah, we do. Man, media mind, pastor. Um, so pastor, let's join the NRA. Start our own chapter of the NRA. Start our own chapter of the NRA. You know, uh, Xavier is funny. I, I hope we do a story about that. Black people joining the NRA because. I just listened to a story about that too, which was really good, and um, hopefully we'll get to that. I don't have it this week, but I'll try. To- Xavier, speaking of which, I want to talk to you after you after we at this ends about NRA and guns and stuff. I guess something I wanted to see if you know about it. About to you, but well, I do want to move to the immigration uh, debate. Um, Derek mentioned about it, and there's a story about some of the immigration laws in Alabama that I thought were interesting, and it might be a microcosm. Uh, the uh, national immigration policy that's coming up. So I'm going to play that real quick. President Trump is clamping down on illegal immigration, and the state of Alabama might offer some clues about what exactly this will mean. In 2011, it passed what was called the toughest immigration law in the country. There were intended and unintended consequences. Dan Carson of member station WBHM in Birmingham reports. This is a middle schooler just outside Birmingham in 2011. I think they're going to um, come in our house and come kick the door and they're going to take my mom and dad. This is a college senior just outside Birmingham last week. I don't know if I'm going to see my parents tomorrow. Fernanda Herrera's father crossed the Mexican border illegally when she was two. She and her mom flew in months later with visas now expired. The Sanford University honors student is covered under DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So for now, she likely won't be deported, but she's scared. It's supposed to be a happy time. I'm about to graduate from college, the first in my family to do so. And my parents have worked so hard to get me through these four years. And knowing how detention centers are, and thinking about my parents having to go through that, knowing that my, pa- my family could be separated, it's just really difficult. Her family also feared that in 2011. Alabama had enacted a law that, among other things, nullified contracts, leases, water service, anything, and even made it a crime to give a ride to someone in the country illegally. The law's author said the goal was to attack every aspect of life. Herrera sees something similar happening nationally now, but she hopes the U.S. will learn from Alabama. They'll see in time that attacking a community is not the way to have immigration reform happen. Because, I mean, here in Alabama, we fought back and we had a lot of that repealed. Suits by advocacy groups and the Justice Department blocked much of the law, including a requirement that schools check students' immigration status. But that was after farmers' crops rotted and other industries lost labor and business as families fled the state. Jeremy Love is an immigration lawyer who says he's feeling deja vu. There's a lot of fear uh, going on right now. I've had people say they want to do a phone consultation rather than come in my office because they were afraid of going out of their house. He predicts mass deportations will hurt the U.S. economy and trigger legal backlash similar to what happened in Alabama. He has more immediate concerns for his clients, though. People are leaving a very dangerous situation in their home country. State Representative Jack Williams agrees, but isn't swayed. 
the co-sponsor of the 2011 Alabama law thinks values, not necessarily physical danger, should determine who gets to stay. Today, many people are coming to America from very unstable situations. A hundred years ago, people came to America because they wanted to be Americans. He says his stance against illegal immigration is principle, not personal. I think there's a richness that we enjoy from uh, the diversity that comes from people coming from around the world. And I'm not opposed or afraid of immigrants. I just would like to see us follow the law. About uh, uh, immigration and this policy that was passed in Alabama in 2011, um, I was uh, somewhat aware of it because of the court battle ensued. Uh, they talked about it in passing, but um, yeah, it was some crazy shit that happened uh, for a year or so before it didn't happen, which was lots of, you know, people moved from Alabama and it hurt their economy. Seriously. And this is one of those things that is going to happen nationwide when they've already uh, instituted these um, executive orders scheduling people for deportation. Um, I think Derek mentioned the, the fact that they're using children to get their parents. Like that's some crazy shit because you register your kids so that they wouldn't, they'd be descheduled for uh, deportation, but because they're childhood arrivals, it alerts ICE to the fact that their parents are not covered, you know? So by definition, like you're not gonna run and enroll your child in this program because they're gonna come after you. That's their like um, back-end way of dealing with DACA. DACA is very popular. You know, because you, there are illegal immigrants who come into this country, you know, go to college and become very successful in contributing members to society. And it's something that the few things that you can get Republicans behind on immigration reform was DACA, right? So, but they're, they're, they're getting rid of it in a, you know, kind of roundabout way by rounding up their parents. So, um, Fucked up. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> because it goes back to again, this is people who do things without really looking at the long-term implications of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're going something you say it's gonna hurt your economy. Because now you're not gonna have everything can't be done by a machine yet. Yeah. You know, crop there are certain crops that need to be picked and need to be tended, and you ain't finna get no black folks out there to do it. Now, no matter how much you pay us, because it looks too much like slavery, so we won't do it. But you can get a slew of Mexicans to go out there and pick fruit, pick these oranges and so forth and so on. And for some of these states, especially these big Republican states that got these kind of crops that need to be picked, and then they find out, oh, now we're going to buy these machines that do it, but they cost X amount of dollars. Um, we're going to end up losing our business, or we need this done, or we need that done. They're going to lose all of this very cheap labor that they had, not to say that the labor should have been this cheap, but it was, and so it worked for our economic system. So now you're going to crash that because you're going to snatch out the the ground root foundation of this economic system. Why it exists is because it's built on the backs of the lower and disenfranchised. Yeah, but the problem is those lower and disenfranchised people are now getting rights. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? They have a, a a place at the table in a way because of protected status within the United States. And Republicans hate it. They just don't like seeing Mexicans being equal. And so, you know, when I think about that, um, you know, the bill that passed in Alabama, all of these people fled the state 
I'm sure there were a lot of happy Republicans because of that. Even though it hurt their state, their economy. Yeah, I'm sure they celebrated. <laughs> Just saying. The unintended consequences are something that some people enjoy. You know, a Mexican free, you know, grocery store. Like, oh, there's all these fucking Mexicans at my grocery store. Well, now they're gone. I guess, uh, you know, they're the first. <laughs> yeah, they're gone now, but an orange that used to cost you a dollar now can cost you five dollars. Exactly. Maybe I went to the mother freaking store to get my avocados. What used to cost me under a dollar is now like, I think I spent three for five dollars. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah, already- I was mad as hell. Strawberries is gonna go up. Yes, fruits and vegetables are gonna take a hit. Yeah, and it's funny that um, even we talk about imported uh, produce because a lot of those things are grown in Mexico, but the majority of our produce comes from California, which we know is one of the highest, you know, immigration populated states in the country. Um, something else that's going to be going up very soon. And it is a domino effect. Mm. Something else is going to be going up very soon is sugar. Mm. Uh, We get uh, the most sugar that we import from any place else comes from Mexico. And that's about to go up. And you need sugar for damn everything. (laughs) Yep. Which means that restaurant costs are going to go up. Um. yeah, it's 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 about to get ugly up. It's gonna get severe up in here. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And um, yeah, like I was saying, that uh, part of the platform we talked about, Donald Trump and Steve Bannon came up with this this economic nationalism, which is they're trying to decrease or increase the prices of imports to favor American goods. So on top of the fact that you're not going to have the ability to get the workers to in the United States. To produce at the levels that we're going to need, you're also cutting off imports as well. So it's just like a policy to except for except for steel, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know military spending, obviously. Yes. Well, you know, no, I brought I brought up the steel specifically. Um, one of the uh, things written into the the presidential order about the Dakota pipeline and the other pipeline, I can't remember the name of the other one, was that they would have to be made with U.S. steel, except the Dakota pipeline already got uh, um, use from that, because apparently that steel was already bought from Russia? Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah, and they were saying it would cost more if you were to now replace it with other except none of that steel except none of that is actually true and there is no steel there right right <laughs> and not only that we're just not man you know they could create some sort of national program subsidies or whatever to produce the steel in the united states because of course a campaign promise but the fact is we are not really suited the industries here are not um equipped to produce the steel that they want they could we are not. Yeah, they, they could be made to do that with a nice investment from the United States or you know, private industry, but they currently aren't. You know, so a lot of those policies just can't really happen. And you know, of course, this is exactly what you asked for. I mean, you it for Trump. 
And see, they're not impacted by it because they can afford it. And that's what people fail to realize. You're, you're saying you want to get rid of this group and you want to get rid of that group and you feel like they're taking this from you or that from you. But you fail to realize the people helping you do that are the people who can afford the more expensive labor, who can afford mm-hmm. to deal with what's going to what's gonna be the backlash of this secondary issue that's going to come out of this now. They can deal with it. So, of course, they're like, yeah, we'll help you do that. It's like helping you cut your own nose off. Yeah. Yep. I was trying to queue up the next. Uh, I was trying to queue up the next. But yeah, I was like, um, yeah, just just thinking about those policies. Um, one of the things that I um, didn't get to also, that I think I skipped over in our last story, had to do with the deconstruction of the administrative state. Um, was the prosecutor in New York? It didn't come up in the news. Um, that we played, and I was hoping that it would. For whatever reason, this morning, that's all they were talking about. But, um, you know, I wish I had the background information. But basically... What do you want to know? Um, I know it was... I can't remember the man's name. Um, I cannot remember his name either. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do know that Donald Trump himself asked him to stay on uh, specifically mm-hmm. after Obama left office. And... Then two days ago, um, he and forty-five other same job yeah. were told by the end of day to turn in their resignation. Yes, and that was just part. Yeah, I think even Republicans called it dumb because. Uh, well, yeah, because it's not done that way. You, I mean, you literally leave a lot of legal things in limbo. Yeah, because. You call me at noon and tell me to have my desk cleared out by five o'clock. Yeah, he, he had three current active investigations. Uh, one, yes, one of them actually happened to be into Fox News and the um, sex scandal going on there. Say what? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Other two were actually Democrats. Uh, public. Um. So. He had also received uh, letters from five different groups on um, trying to think of what it's called. Uh, my mind is because we're under Trump now. Um, 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 shoot, what do they call that when you're supposed to behave a certain way? The um, ethics guidelines? Ethics, yes, 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 yes. Five or six different ethic groups yeah. that were all trying to get him I'm sorry, 20 Yes, turned out to be twenty different ethnic groups that all wanted him to look into uh, this this Russia thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you get it from that many people, you have to actually do it. And the and Trump Tower falls under his jurisdiction. It does. And not only yeah. that, I think the um, basically the apparatus of the Justice Department and the justice system in general really um, admire him as a prosecutor. You yes. say he's just like the best, you know, like we've had in a generation or, or a while because he, you know, even though he was a Democratic uh, appointee, he has equally gone after Democrats and Republicans. And, um, you know, obviously New York is a very blue state, though the public corruption he tends to go after are Democrats. And he's proven to be very 
uh, nonpartisan in that regard. And he's just really good. He's about just. Yeah, yeah, he's just really good. He was on the cover of Forrest magazine like last year as just being, you know, one of the most successful prosecutors as far as getting penalties against companies that engage in things like uh, insider trading. You know, he's, they, you know, call him the sheriff of Wall Street or something like that. So, and, you know, and, and he's really no reason other than partisanship. And did they say that that this because I've been watching the CNN report about it yesterday, and they were saying that well, the same thing happened um, when Obama transitioned from Bush, but then somebody said, well, it wasn't done the same exact way. You have the op. It's like when you when a new administration comes into because they did it here. I mean, I I didn't think that mayors do it. You know what I'm saying? Like your local um, elected officials do it too. They when you when the new mayor comes in or the new the new elected official, do you want to do you have the option to stay? The one state in that you know you you have the option to leave or resign, and we're going to replace you with somebody else. You know what I'm saying? It was like you know we I want you out of here. It's just like you know if you you're able to if you want to stay you can stay. If not. Just saying, yeah, you're absolutely right. And the uh, 45, 44 other people who were let go fall under that category. But he was personally given an exemption from the president-elect back in November. Yes. And because and normally you don't fire everybody at once. It's, again, a domino effect to say, clear, you, you know, you're going to have 60 days. You're going to have 90 days. Yeah, you're going to have 120 days so that you can clear your calendar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you, you still got to get the work done, and firing all those people at once before you've hired new people is uh, represent, you know. It's, just, it's much like having a it's much like having a country and not having a FEMA. <laughs> exactly. So I fell under that category. It wasn't in the story, but I wanted to bring that up. Um, but before we go, I want to um, get everyone to come up with their feel good story at the end. I think I might have one. Um, I'm thinking. Of, I'm going to try to think of something, and I'm going to do one more news update from NPR, and then um, we'll get into our. We'll talk about those that we're interested in, and then we'll go right into our. Uh, Tell me something good segment. All right. NPR News in Washington. I'm Windsor Johnston. An Al-Qaeda link group has claimed responsibility for an attack that killed dozens of people in the Syrian capital yesterday. NPR's Alice Amuse reports the attack in Damascus targeted Shiite Muslims from around the region. The al-Qaeda-linked Rebel Alliance claims its attack targeted a gathering of Iranian-backed militias allied with Bashar al-Assad's forces. But the attacks hit a religious pilgrimage site, which draws Shiite Muslims from Iraq and beyond. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says Saturday's explosions, including a suicide bomber, killed 54 Syrian and Iraqi civilians. More than a third were women and children. Watchdog says 20 pro-government militiamen were also killed. Sunni extremist groups consider Shiites heretics and blame Shiite militias for propping up Bashar al-Assad's government. This rare attack in the heart of Damascus comes as forces loyal to Assad press a deadly offensive on the outskirts of the capital. Alison News, NPR News, Beirut. The Italian government has deported a Tunisian citizen for alleged ties to the suspected Berlin Christmas market truck attacker. But Christopher Livesay reports his role in the attack is unclear. The Italian Interior Ministry did not release the man's name, calling him a 37-year-old supporter of ISIS and an associate of Anis Amri, the Tunisian suspect of a truck attack on a Berlin Christmas market that killed 12 people last December. 
Italian police shot Omri dead in a standoff outside Milan four days later, but they continue to investigate his support network, which is how Italian officials say they identified the man they just deported from the city of Latina, south of Rome. It was in this region where he allegedly met Omri and associated with other radicals who opposed the local moderate imam. For NPR News, I'm Christopher Livesay in Rome. The House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee is warning that Brexit negotiations might end without a deal due to the complexity of the negotiations and the short two-year time frame. Crispin Blunton is the chair of the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He says the UK needs to be prepared that a deal may not be reached with European Union negotiators. We need to inform ordinary people and ordinary businesses and commerce in our country of what the likely uh, uh, results would be if there's no deal so they can plan for it. Uh, They need to be planning just as much as government departments do. The House of Commons and House of Lords are currently fighting over the bill's contents. The Lords wanted to include a provision that would give Parliament a vote on the final deal between Britain and the 27-nation bloc. At least 34 people are dead after a bus crashed into a crowd of people in northern Haiti. At least 15 others were injured. The crash occurred about 90 miles north of the capital, Port-au-Prince. The cause is unknown. This is NPR News in Washington. So I just wanted to do a quick news update. Did any of those stories hit you or um, any other news items that um, have come up this week? I pretty much am out of it. I had another one on immigration, but we just talked about it pretty much to death. But... uh, um, talking about Brexit, uh, the protests that were happening in, I think it was uh, the Dutch capital, and talking about the ISIS attacks that happened in Syria. Yeah, I, I want to be concerned about all that, but I, we have a terrorist right here sitting in the White House. I can't. You know, I didn't I, 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 wanna, I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be that way. I really don't want to be that way, but, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I do. I'm on Derek's team on this one. Yeah, yeah. I I, admit, I, I did the same thing, and I, I have to admit, like, knowing the fact that we have international listeners and we get international news, we're just like, oh, whatever. <laughs> God, I'm a I mean, I'm not saying whatever to it, but it's like, I feel like if we go down, then... You only have so much brain capacity to deal with so much shit at one time. Yeah. That's true. But then also, those other, those, a lot of those other, like, Let's say that there's so with our foreign partners, those people around us that we are connected with, Trump endangers them too. Yeah. You know, he's already talked about wanting to walk away from NAFTA and the free trade and all that. He doesn't want to play well with everybody. Yeah. You know? So even though, you know, I'm concerned about what's going on with them, if we don't get our home base together, then there won't be a us and them. Yeah. Mm-mm. Well, you know, I do. I do have one last thing I was maybe wanted to bring up, which is the deal with the travel ban. But I thought it, it kind of touched on the immigration issue. Uh, way too much overlap, but maybe this might be a, a clue into it because it was one of the things when the the travel ban was originally um, introduced. Um, protests immediately broke out. How how it went down, you know, had a lot to do with it, but also the content of it. But just this past week, a new travel ban was issued, and you know it dealt with many of the legal issues. It was slowly, slowly being implemented. I think it fully is implemented on the 16th, like this Thursday. 
So it's already been ratified or whatever. It's being challenged in the courts. But the second time around, it's not getting as much pushback. And I do have a story on that. I can play real quick and we can talk about it on the other side. Uh, let me go ahead and do that. The American Civil Liberties Union has made it very clear they have no plans to back down on legal action to try and block President Trump's latest executive order on immigration. The ACLU has suits pending in a number of courts. We are joined on the line by Lee Gallant. He is deputy director of the ACLU's National Immigrants' Rights Project. Uh, good morning. Good morning. So the Trump administration has made some changes now, taking Iraq off the list, offering um, a, a lot of exemptions um, that, that seem to open the door for more people to, to, to not have to abide by these rules. Is You're still opposed. Tell me why. We are still opposed. I mean, we expected them to narrow the ban. They had to narrow the ban, but we do believe that it remains unconstitutional. We believe that the core constitutional problem has always been that it discriminates on the basis of religion, that it was prompted by religious discrimination, uh, intent to discriminate on the basis of religion, and we think that remains, so we will continue to challenge it. Let me just work this through with you, because intent was one issue that came up in the first legal battle. Um, many argued that President Trump you know, essentially used the, the term ban on Muslims during the campaign. And even though that was not the intent the White House was using now, what he said during the campaign should have been taken into consideration. So with this new order, is that where your legal argument is going to focus? I think that is certainly one of the principal arguments we'll be making. But we will also we will be focusing on all of his statements saying this is a Muslim ban and the fact that he, he now just simply tried to tweak it and get around the legal challenges, but that the intent was always to have a Muslim ban and it remains a Muslim ban. And I, and I would you know caution people to not just look at the statements made during the campaign, but also what's evidence is the first executive order that on its face discriminated on the basis of religion. So what we have is the statements leading up to the first executive order and then the exec first executive order itself. And I think all of that will be taken into account by the courts. Context is very important. The courts have made it clear that they are supposed to look beyond the four corners of a document at what really was going on. And I think that's what the courts have done thus far and will continue to do. What, what, how do you answer the argument that this is the policy of an elected president? It's a policy he promised to enact through the campaign very publicly. Right. Well, I mean, I think that that's the great thing about our country and our Constitution is that even the president, with the backing of a majority of people, cannot override constitutional protections. And our Constitution is very clear that we don't permit religious discrimination. I also, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this. I don't know that there's a majority of people who are specifically saying that they want a Muslim ban and that that's why the president was elected, but that that's not what I want to talk about. I, you know, even if that were true, it doesn't permit the, the president to override the constitution. Okay. We're speaking to uh, Lee Gallant. He is deputy director of the National Immigrants' Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
unfortunately, I wasn't able to clip the ends of the uh, NPR stories because they, they leave that tail on for radio broadcasters to give them time to go into the next story. Sorry about that. I'm talking about the immigration ban um, or travel ban uh, that was reissued, I believe, this past week, um, but will go into effect Thursday. Um, you know, the ACLU, who, who the first time got the injunction, will, is really the reason why uh, they had to do a second order because the first one was in the water. Um, so this one, the new order actually rescinds the last order and institutes this one, which the only difference I understand is they removed the language about religious minorities and they took off uh, Iraq from the list. Okay. Yeah. That was simply because of, at the request of um, Secretary Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, who is fighting a war in Iraq right now against ISIS, and many of the translators and people in Iraq who assist the United States need that immigration ban lifted. You know, like, yeah, it's just the actual, you know, it should also be noted that no one in the national security apparatus actually believes this ban is um, useful in any way to improve national security. <laughs> so, and in fact, in one major way, the first ban really hurt our, um, our relationship with those in Iraq who are helping us, uh, you know, help them fight their civil war, which is going on now. So, yeah, anyway, any thoughts on that? Because I know, like, I, after this, we're just going to do our, um, you know, feel-good moment, if you have any good news after that. but uh, I just have this. I don't, un I don't understand, and it just goes back to what we've been saying uh, before, I don't understand how this dude is magical. I don't understand how... You sh you're not supposed to take what he says literal, except the things that he says that are supposed to be literal. So I remember when they talked about the Muslim ban and they, you know, called Sean Spicer out on it, that, that Trump called it a Muslim ban. And well, I mean, you're not supposed to take that literal, but, you know, when he said he going to build a wall and, you know, now he's trying to build a wall, you know, but you are supposed to take that literal. And then when he says he can go out on Sixth Avenue and shoot a motherfucker and not lose no votes, well, I didn't. He didn't, you know, literally mean that. But shit, I know, right? No, it all. I mean, it all goes back to the same thing. It's you know, shit's crazy. Yeah, you live in a post-factory <laughs> environment. I mean, the fact that um, you know, the president can make these allegations against Obama with the wiretapping bullshit. Yeah, and no, it's like, well, you know, it's the president. He's a neophyte. You know, he doesn't really know what he's doing. You know, he'll we'll make up a yeah, which is and so then, you scary. know what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's true. He doesn't know what he's doing, and he has said as much when he said, "Oh, you know, reforming this health ban, this health care thing. Who knew it was going to be this hard, bitch? Really." <laughs> Really, and it's kind of that way with running the rest of the country. Yeah. You, oh, uh, I mean, oh, I don't need to fill these spots. They can just stay blank. They can stay empty. Look how much money we're saving till some shit happens, and you sitting there with your thumb up your ass, or you know. Um, but you got to think he couldn't do this by himself. The American people I, feel this way. They believe and think the way he does. 
henceforth yeah. why he do was they arrested. Know? Do they, yes, if you do don't they think this way or do they just not realize what they've done? Both. Yeah. And then I think I think it's both. But you know, a lot of people just they have an opinion and they don't base this opinion off of any kind of fact. It's just an opinion that they have. And so if you don't belong to a special population, you know, LGBT, Muslim, whatever, then you don't really take the time to educate yourself on what's what's really happening. And therefore, you don't really know. And I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that most of the people who truly believe in Trump, and I mean, got those those diehards that believe in Trump have never been anywhere but America. They've never been outside of this country. That's true. And don't know what's going on in the rest of the world if they even realize that there is a rest of the world that exists. Yeah. They talk about that on um, one of the shows I was going to recommend at the end of the show. Might as well bring it up. Marie Katu is uh, the, uh, I believe she was the founder of Wokat years ago, back in the 2000s. Um, was kind of, you know, be an activist and a journalist at the same time. And I really like that about her. She has a new podcast called um, With Friends Like These. She's trying to um, have these conversations talking together. And you know, they were talking about some of the healthcare um, issues with one of the supporters of uh, President Trump. Um, and one of the things he mentioned in the conversation was a lot of his voters, even all they knew was that they hated Washington. I mean, all certain media has talked about, you know, the swamp, Brandon Swamp, you know, all how, you know, Washington is awful. And they were very conscious of the fact that President Trump was a confident and that he was evil and not evil, but misogynistic and all these other things, but they hated Washington so much that they wanted him to blow shit up. I mean, they weren't really thinking about the consequences of that, and I agree with that, but I think they consciously knew that he was bad, and they didn't care. Yeah, that's what my barber said. My barber said the same thing. He said he voted for Trump because he figured Trump would tear the system down. Yeah, That's as far as his thought process went. He didn't uh, think about, you know, well... The system got torn down? Right, and could the system actually be rebuilt? Yeah. I think that's very accurate, at least to a large segment of the population. Yeah. They purposely ignored all the isms because they, they wanted change. I mean, they just did. Um, and not all change is good change. It's not. If, if your company came in, you work for a car company, and they said, we're going to make some changes. And one of the first changes is we're going to automate <laughs> all machines all the time. Yeah, It's going to be awesome. Yes, that is a change. Is that a good change for you? Hell no. That is a change. But it is a change. There you go. It's a change. Yeah. And I think it is incumbent upon us to have conversations with people and talk about what their votes matter. When we read off that list, I really appreciate Mark for doing that from his Facebook feed. Like, this is the Republican agenda. This is what they pass. They're in lockstep. That's something the Republicans are in. And maybe they won't pass all these things, and that's only because of the pressure from the other side to stop them. You know? And this is the shit they want to do. But a lot of them are not really paying attention. So. All right, let's, on, let's do some happy news. <laughs> let's do some. 
things that made you happy this week? Just to call and check it out. Um, well, I actually had two things that made me happy. Okay. One was I found this article uh, that talked about people with certain types of autism also having, there's a lot of research that shows that a lot of them tend to have very savant-type uh, natures as well. Mm-hmm. In other words, people who are diagnosed with certain types of illnesses have been known to be extremely gifted in some place or another. And they talk about it being because they are able, their parts of the brain that block out or has been damaged to the point where they don't readily accept or notice other things like emotions, emotional control and balance uh, or impulse control makes them more creative, makes them better. So they it cited a lot of famous people who were prolific in what they did, Picasso being one, um, uh, uh, Van Gogh being another one, and so forth and so on. Um, and so they, Steve Nash, these are people who were able to do things in intellectual things that were astounding and no one else could do them but these people had been diagnosed with mental illnesses so that made me smile a little bit and then the other thing is uh, this is one personal one though uh i run a i run a ptsd group uh, post-traumatic stress disorder group for people um and it's under a program called seeking safety and so it has grown from about five or six individuals to uh close to 11 with referrals constantly coming in so i've got to have about that yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, that's cool. And I was going to say on the, on the first note that you're saying, um, I remember there was a story about um, how people who are in like gaming industries and so forth have um, have certain, what is it, a, on the spectrum of autism, um, like Asperger's and so forth. Yeah. I talked about a lot of people who involved in the video game industry in particular who had these like, world creating skills to people you know it's part of the reason why they created these worlds in their computers because they didn't know how to interact with real people you know people who make there you go thing like the sims and things like that and it's a it's a really strong thing in the video game industry these massively multiplayer online games are mostly made by people who have social problems so yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, and I gave other examples, like a good thing to have is a doctor that's OCD. Yeah. If you're going to have a surgery done, who else better than a perfectionist? And a perfectionist is an OCD person. <laughs> yeah, that's true. yeah. So it, it, you know, I think that is a great story. I, I really appreciate that. Um, one of the things I was going to say on a much more lively note, when we, I don't know, lively, contentious. <laughs> I was going to say contentious. I remember how. I got so much side eye when I said I didn't like Scandal anymore. And <laughs> I was just not watching it. Well, I started watching it again, and I actually enjoy it. All right, that was good. I go back for I, I look at it, I'm like, wow, I'm watching this. And then I'm watching it. <laughs> but this is the thing I, I figured out. My problem with Scandal was that I was placing Scandal in a universe where shit like this could happen. And I was constantly rolling my eyes about the fact that, that, it couldn't happen. that it couldn't happen. But now I started to see the show from a perspective of this is an alternate universe. Like, especially when the assassination happened, um, whatever, I don't want to spoil for people haven't seen it, but I was just like, okay, yeah, we're in fun time world now. And <laughs> like this shit would never happen. And it's okay. It's okay. You know what? I actually enjoy some of the interactions and the acting and like some of the drama and the shade and, you know, the empowerment, like you were talking about how 
Olivia's like the most powerful person. She doesn't even know it. Like, there's a lot of good shit in that show. Once I let go of the fact that this is not reality. Because <laughs> I like shows firmly based in reality, but I like fantasy too. And, you know, for what it is, I think Scandal's an excellent show, and I, I've been um, enjoying it. The other thing is... Welcome. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I just... Some things I can't let go. I let it go, and I enjoyed it. Okay. So, uh, so letting go is good. Um, the second thing was this uh, science. I love science. So um, there was SpaceX is uh, currently uh, building a, a more efficient rocket to take trips to the moon. And it's interesting. The original NASA space program to get to the moon I didn't realize that they were building rockets powerful enough to get to Mars because they really did feel like um, the moon was a stepping stone to Mars. But, you know, after um, the Apollo mission stopped, you know, our trip to Mars was pretty much canceled. That was way back in the 70s. You know? So they had continued to use these rockets to take you to Mars just to put up satellites, and it was really inefficient. So I didn't realize how SpaceX was able to do you know, their space missions on such a lower budget. But when someone explained to me, they just build shittier rockets. They're not trying to go to Mars. They're trying to go to the moon. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's kind of smart. Um, and they're they're taking up two uh, anonymous billionaires who paid to go to uh, the moon. It's like a three-day trip. They're going to go to the moon and orbit around. They're not going to land. But they're going to make, like, maybe 12 rotations of the moon and come back to Earth. Um and they have projects in their works to terraform the moon. I was like, what? They've so, talked about that for years. Yeah, no, but I guess now they actually have a prototype of this uh, terraforming thing. So one of the reasons why we have an atmosphere is because of the magnetic field which shields us from solar radiation. And the fact is that the moon is basically Earth. I mean, the 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 materials that are the moon are the same materials that are like it was basically in the rotation of creating the solid matter a piece of it rolled off and became another piece so very much so the moon could be terraformed to be another earth and the first step to that would be giving it a magnetic field to um, resist solar radiation and at that point oxygen nitrogen all the same materials that compose our atmosphere could form around the moon. Um, the second step to that would be to create, you know, the same technology to magnetically create a magnetic field. You could use to steer comets and debris that contain water to hit the moon. They normally do it less accurate with all these things, but we need to add water um, to make the atmosphere truly um, robust. You know, that's part of most of what is in the atmosphere is water. So those two things would give us at least half the atmosphere of the um, of Earth because of its size. And with, that would be similar to being on a mountain in, on Earth. You know, you'd have much less pressure, much less, much less air, but it is survivable. People could actually live there. So that was one of my things is like, this is possible with current technology. Uh, it have, yes. It has to be. We've seen this movie before. Though. I know, I know. I'm just saying that the technology wasn't there yet. I'm telling you, like, 
as of 2017, that technology now exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's fucking amazing. <laughs> I'm, just saying. I'm sure it's not going to happen in our lifetime, but the fact that it actually exists in a lab somewhere. Never say never. Say never. Yeah. This is true. Shit happens, but the idea of looking up at the moon and seeing like a little earth filled me with joy. That's all. <laughs> just the fact that that could happen. So that was my made me happy moment. Do you have one, Derek? This way? Um, do I have one? Uh, let's see. I have enjoyed the continual dragging of Van Jones. <laughs> um. I have enjoyed the continual dragging of Ben Carson. Yeah. Why I don't get why they're dragging Van Jones so much. What is that? Because you can't do because here's the thing, because you can't do a 180 like that. Um, I don't think he Van did a 180. Jones. I think he did one show where he said this is the first time Trump ever said something I thought was somewhat presidential. He said Actually what he said was he has finally become presidential. He made a declarative okay. statement. So the man made a declared statement. This is a man who damn near broke down on national television. Now, this, now, is this true? Now, somebody told me this. Now, is this true? And y'all be be honest with me. No matter how I may feel about it. Is Van Jones married to a white woman? Yes. Oh Lord Jesus. <laughs> they have little little babies. I'm sure they have a nice family. Jesus be a thing. <laughs> But this is the thing I said about that um, Van Jones dragon, which is he said things in the past that were just as boneheaded, and I honestly forgot about them because he's so cute. <laughs> he is so cute. <laughs> he is very cute. He is very cute. But you know, and he gets cuter as he gets older. Like I Damn. does. Stop being cute. I know. I know. But he's he not cute. I would say Xavier. He has periodically said these stupid things, and our memory is short. And it goes away, but it was a reminder. When they're that's normal because they're you know when they're cute like that, you forgive them. It's think about how when we dated ones like him. Yeah, yeah. they do shit. Yeah. You forget about it. You be looking like hard oh, right. They, they cute. They got good sex. Any number yeah, of things. exactly. You so your friends got to be there. Right right exactly. So you know what he did? Such and such, such such. I was like, oh yeah. So if you look at you look yeah. at it in that context, Xavier. It makes sense because it wasn't just what he said. It was a reminder to people. Yeah. Disappointed with him in the past. Yeah. It was for me. He do the damn most. He does. I was hoping. I was I was rooting for you. I was <laughs> I was hoping you'd have a career. I mean, I was I was rooting for you. And you fucked that shit up. We were rooting for you. We were all rooting for you. And this is where you took us, yes. Yeah. Um so yes, I have enjoyed those. Uh let's see, what else? Uh check out if you have Amazon Prime. Check out a little show that was severely and utterly put on the wrong channel called Brain Dead. Um, it's a show from 2015. It's a it was made by the people that made The Good Wife, which is how it wound up on CBS, which was the absolute wrong place for it to wind up. But in this show, there's a meteor that lands on Earth, and it has all of these little worms, all these little bugs in it that start eating politicians' brains and taking over their bodies, which is even more poignant today. Um, It's 13 episodes. I've watched 
11. So I have two left. Mm. Um, but it, so, but I really enjoyed it. But in watching it, it became very clear to me that this was on the wrong network. Yeah. Because uh, CBS doesn't really do stuff like that. That's why Supergirl had to move because that's not really CBS's audience. Yeah. So it, it makes me a little leery about their Star Trek show that's coming up too. Even though that's only on Access, it's still not their audience. I think that's a reasonable concern too. Because, um, yeah, anyone who, who doesn't consider their audience in the creation of their content is is mistaken. Yeah, they, I mean CBS. The, CBS is the number one network, but they don't do. Like the most science fictionist thing that they do is the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very much. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. Um, I've not really followed CBS for a while, so I, it really is not on my radar. Like most of the shows on CBS don't appeal to me. Um, but yeah, and there's a reason. I'm not their audience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, at last. I have, I guess I've been promoted from a guest to a full-timer, um, as I was asked slash informed today uh, on Poppy Chulo Radio. I will be sitting in semi-permanently on the show High Tea with Carla Stilwell. Um, PoppyChuloRadio.com, so... You know, when, come check it out. When the episodes come out? Uh, the episodes come out on Tuesdays on iTunes and PapaChuloRadio.com. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, I'm very happy that you're doing this because, like I said, uh, you have the ability to, you know, not make me not want to kill myself. <laughs> because at this point... <laughs> A very, very good skill, and I think. Well, thank you for that. I, that I literally, that 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 being funny conversation has come up four times this week. Yeah, no, it's a very, very real service, and I'm glad you're doing it. So, um, and thank you for being here. We're gonna end it there. Um, thank you, to Derek, Mark, Xavier, all of our audience. Um, yeah. Also, thank you to uh, Chris Impact Sutton, who also uh, is the editor in chief of the LGBT Update. Uh, check out the M3 Gaming Podcast. He knows games. It's his show, but it's on M3. And check out the LGBT update as well. Um, and we will see you next week. Thank you, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening to the M3 Bear Essentials Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or whichever podcatcher you use. And if you would like to get more content from M3, visit MailMediaMind.com. There you'll find links to all of our social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and many others. But most importantly, our link to YouTube, where you can subscribe and get a notification when we go live. There, you can participate in the Q&A and be a part of the conversation. Again, my name is Malcolm Travers, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next episode.